New to Medicare? Start now. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about some of the top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. If you're thinking about a Medicare Advantage plan, MyHealthPolicy.com is a great place to go to find a plan that meets your needs. Learn more about your options. Even talk with a licensed insurance agent. MyHealthPolicy.com Just let me kick a little sport flow. It's John Cena on the best damn sports show. I'm nothing but net, like Peyton from Long Range. I got a big unit, so I'm going for long change. Long top, I'm going to pass, y'all. I throw the high heat like a Rob Dibble fastball. Beats is nice, flows astounding. I pitch a perfect game like my name is Tom Browning. Yeah, that's right, and we keep it sparking. Sweet swing like Eric Davis or Barry Larkin. I'm a bad boy like Sally and Lambeer. Your show is blessed, man. The champ done been here. My name is Kurt Angle. I try to be nice. I'm an Olympic gold medalist, not some weak vanilla ice. Which is why I'm happy I no longer have the blues. Because come this Sunday, John Cena, you're gonna lose. I think it's quite sad, maybe even tragic. You'll be a bigger loser than the Orlando Magic. Bye-bye, T-Mac. You think you're so slick, like a pool of grease. But tonight, John Cena, you're gonna rest in peace. Translation, would you like one? Cena, you have a lot more to worry about than your fatal four-way match this Sunday. Because tonight, you will go one-on-one with The Undertaker. Oh my! Good God! That is huge! Oh, Cena. Cena. Word life. Anyone out there remember the Fox Sports Show? The best damn sports show, period? That John Cena rap was actually from this week in 2005, his appearance on that sports show. So, pretty cool. And that other rap was a random rap that Kurt Angle did on WWE programming this week in 2004. I had a lot of choices as far as what to open up with this week. I figured let's do that. I know a lot of you out there already know in advance that this week in retrospect is the anniversary of the Benoit double murder-suicide. There's a couple of other very important moments in wrestling history that took place this week as well. We will get into all of them later on in this broadcast. And one thing I'll let everybody know right off the bat, especially with the Benoit murders, you know, there have been hundreds of interviews done over the years. People have read, reread. Uh, we've seen specials. We've seen documentaries, news reports, blogs. We've seen everything since that murder suicide took place in 2007. So, what I'm going to do to be a little bit different is I'm going to share two interviews that were done on the Benoit tragedies later on. But I wanted to do air things that 
maybe a lot of you out there have not heard. Because there is quite a few interviews that are repeated over and over and over again over the years. But I have two in particular I really wanted to share. One was um, an interview that Vince McMahon did in 2007, right after the Benoit murders. And it's an interview I think a majority of you out there have never heard before. I find it interesting looking back on it to this day. Another one as well was New Jack in a shoot interview he did with Honky Tonk Man and the Iron Sheik. And New Jack, very, very blunt, explicit on this topic. And I decided to choose those two. And we'll also touch back on, you know, the DTKC show, because remember that night on Monday Night Raw, we, as I still do to this day, every Monday night right after Raw, do the live wrestling show that I do, the podcast and when the tragedy took place, we were the only regular show that was on that night. And it was just really surreal. And that episode is still online if you've never heard it before. We opened up the show paying tribute to Chris Benoit. By the time we were done with the show, we found out and the news broke that he killed his family. So it's just really surreal to listen to our episode that night in real time, how everybody, including WWE, thought it was a terrible tragedy that everybody was murdered. And then four hours later, we would learn that the murderer himself was, in fact, Chris Benoit. So we'll get into that and a bunch of other things. Uh, I want to welcome everyone officially to episode 25 of This Week in Wrestling History. I am Don Tony, as always. This week, we cover the period of June 19th, through June 25th, and next week will be episode 26, which means we will be officially halfway through the year. So pretty cool. All right, so without further ado, let's start this off. And uh, as far as the number of audio clips this week, we got about 20. Some of them are very, very short. Some of them are going to bring back a lot of memories for all of you out there and uh, got some really interesting personal stories mixed in with this episode I really think you'll appreciate it. First, I want to just mention this, and it's important that I mention it because of something else later on in the broadcast. This week in 1938, the National Wrestling Alliance was, in fact, formed. And, you know, when you look back, because this week is the anniversary of NWA TNA holding their first ever weekly tapings on pay-per-view, that their first week actually was the anniversary of the formation of the NWA. So you look back on it. By the way, when we get to NWA TNA later, you know, I I don't think, you know, look, TNA is officially out of business. Now it's Anthem, it's Impact Wrestling. But you look back at those early episodes, TNA, you know, very politically incorrect in a lot of ways. But I don't want to jump too far ahead. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So let's get to 1979 in uh, WWE. WF, Pat Patterson defeated Ted DiBiase to win the North American Championship. As you will hear in about two months, WWF would in fact change the name to uh, the Intercontinental title. And there's a nice little story behind that as well. I'm sure you've some of you have heard about it over the years, Rio de Janeiro and all that other shit, blah, 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 blah. 1981, this week in history, Dusty Rhodes defeats Harley Race to win the NWA World Heavyweight title. I think this was his second of his th three reigns as heavyweight champion. And, you know, I actually did some research 
I did not realize that Dusty Rhodes, think about this. Dusty Rhodes has held the NWA title three times. And this run that he won this week in 81, that title reign lasted about three months. And when you factor in that his first and last reign totaled about three weeks, Dusty Rhodes is NWA heavyweight champion didn't even last a total of four months combined. Very interesting. I don't think a lot of people know that. 1984, Davy Boy Smith loses a hair versus beard match against Bad News Allen, who you better know as Bad News Brown, took place for Stampede Wrestling in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. 1986, Mick Foley makes his pro wrestling debut. He wrestled uh, in Clarksburg, West Virginia. His original in-ring name was Cactus Jack Foley. And I know, you know, I, I, people are tempted to do this. And I've been tempted when I have done these episodes and found the first ever match for a particular person I like. But we don't know if the person ever won or lost. So because people like to paint things rosy, you know, people always put, oh, person won their debut match. Won, won, won. And if you actually research the history of Mick Foley online, 99 out of 100 places always report that Mick Foley won his debut match in pro wrestling against Kurt Kaufman. But the fact of the matter is, Mick Foley, look, he's my top five favorite wrestlers of all time. I've told so many personal stories about this man. He is a saint. I fucking love, he is such a role model. And I'm I'm not going to get into the personal stories again. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard them. I mean, I've seen things with my own eyes that just blew me away about Mick Foley, the kind human being, and um, he's wonderful. But let's also, you know, accept the fact that Mick Foley did, in fact, lose his debut match in pro wrestling. Kirk Kaufman was the winner. Now, this brings back memories for me. The footage is online. If you want to laugh your ass off and get a kick out of it, especially when you put in you know, retrospect that it was 1990. This wasn't mid to late 90s when hardcore wrestling became, you know, uh, I don't want to say the norm, but, you know, pretty much a household uh, part of pro wrestling for all of us. And I don't want to say necessarily that this was a hardcore match. It was a street fight. But when you look back in ECW days, and I've talked about having old videotapes of, Al Snow versus Sabu brawling outside. Terry Funk and Sabu brawling underneath park cars and crazy, crazy shit in Michigan. Well, this week in 1990, a very memorable match took place here in the Northeast. I'm not going to lie. I did not go to this original match, but I went to the one a month later, which we will definitely talk about in the future. But Dennis Carluzzo, I'm sure a lot of you have heard that name. He's a you know mainstream name here in the Northeast 20, 25 years ago. He actually used to do a promotion in Jersey called the World Wrestling Association, the WWA. He ran it with Larry Sharp and Joel Goodhart. And they did an event this week in history in uh, Cooper River Park in Camden County, New Jersey. And the uh, main event that night was Terry Funk versus Stan Hansen. It was outside. It was in a park. But they, you know, they drew a decent crowd. Weather was nice. 
And not only did they brawl in the ring and brawl all around the ring and brawl throughout the crowds that were in attendance, but they actually brawled into the river. And the official decision in the match was that Stan Hansen was disqualified because he body slammed Terry Funk into the river. And if you actually watch the footage, because, you know, a lot of people don't research. And, you know, they're like, oh, it's so funny to hear the referee with a New York accent. It's that no fucking shit. This play, this took place in Jersey. <laughs> Do you hear the referee with a real deep New York accent? Stan Hansen has been disqualified for throwing Terry Funk into the river. I sound more Boston, don't I? See, I'm a New Yorker, and I can't, you know, I have to, I could do like, you know, the cardboard gangsters, you know, that Italian nationality and all that shit, but uh, it brings back memories. But I actually went to an event a month later, and you look at the cards that they used to put out for the WWA. I could arguably say that if you threw it on a pay-per-view and charge $9.99 right now, like TNA does those one-night-only things, I guarantee you, you would probably get a decent buy rate. You're going to get 50,000 buy rates? No, but I think enough people would get a kick out of it. Some of those cards were fucking solid. And I used to go to a few of them. And uh, they did an event. I think it was Wrestling with for Hunger or Wrestlers Against Hunger. There was one in 1991, I believe, me and my friends went to. Main event was Terry Funk versus Bob Backlund. And it was just phenomenal because, you know, Terry Funk's my favorite wrestler of all time. I've been a huge Bob Backlund fan since I was a kid. So it brings back memories. But if you really want to see a fun brawl, warning, the video is grainy because it was a fan cam. And in 1990, they didn't have high-definition camcorders. But go on YouTube, search it out. Terry Funk versus Stan Hansen, WWA 1990, took place this week. 1992, the Super Destroyers defeated Glenn Osborne and Max Thrasher to become the first ever Eastern Championship Wrestling Tag Team Champions. 1992, Shinjiro Otani makes his pro wrestling debut. He debuts for New Japan's Master of Wrestling Day 7 event in Fukushima, Japan. He wrestled under the name Shinjiro Otani and lost against Hiro, uh, Hiroshi, uh, Hiro, Hiro, Hiroyoshi. I'm getting better with my Japanese names, everyone. Hiroyoshi Yamamoto. 1992 as well. First audio clip we're going to share. WCW Beach Blast 1992. Uh, Sting, who was the heavyweight champion at the time, faced Cactus Jack in a Falls Count Anywhere match. It was not for the title. But you look back on it, I think people would be surprised to realize how early in the card Sting, as heavyweight champion, you know, would face. I mean, people get their balls in a bunch these days. Oh, my God, the heavyweight champion didn't close out the pay-per-view. Come on. We were younger. You know, it was, it was different. And honestly, you look back on it, no complaints. But, you know, I'm going to share the audio because I think Jim Ross really calls the match very well. And I know with a lot of our clips that we share on here, it's usually, you know, maybe interviews, skits, promos, appearances, a couple little out, uh, finishes of matches. So we don't get into full-blown, you know, entire matches all that often. This one I thought you would enjoy a little bit. So flashback 1992 
Sting versus Cactus Jack, Falls Count Anywhere, Beach Blast 92. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest of Beach Blast 92 is your special match where pinfalls count anywhere on the Gulf Coast. Introducing first at 304 pounds from Truth of Consequences, New Mexico, Cactus Jack. Cactus Jack, one of the most unpredictable and a man that just doesn't care to put his own body in jeopardy to accomplish his goals. I think he's nothing more than a hitman. A hitman? He's a guy, he's a mercenary. He started his whole situation with Sting last summer. So you think what, somebody's behind hiring Cactus Jack or something to take the champion out? It's a possibility, no doubt about it. Sting's the most marked man in the sport. He's the He's the world's heavyweight champion. But look at Cactus Jack. If he gains that title with a face like that, he'd be a perfect idol for the kids. Ladies and gentlemen, his opponent weighs in at 252 pounds from Venice Beach, California. He is the WCW World Heavyweight Champion America. This is Steve. Cactus Jack has not entered the ring. He's on the ramp right. The champion of the world. So far, Cactus Jack has started it right where I believe he wants to, outside the ring. But Sting blocking it, going for the pinfall on the ramp. Going for the cover. He got one out of it right there on the rampway. Sting with a kick back to the solar plexus. And another. A trifecta to the gut. A right hand. Where's he going to take him? Back to the ropes. That's where. And oh! oh. Elevation right on the ramp. Remember, a thin piece of carpet just for the aesthetics covering it. And Sting takes him face down. Man, oh, oh man. skull right there. Going for the cover, and Cactus kicks out. I'll tell you what, a match like this where pinfalls go anywhere, this match could end in 30 seconds or it could take a half hour. You don't know which. Sting measures him. Oh, my, oh! Sting right on the, straddling the ropes there. Took a big, big chance that did not obviously pay off. Cactus Jack now having the opportunity to regain his senses, if that's possible. I'm not sure Cactus does have some. Oh, gosh! Right, on the, right off the apron. Again, right on this concrete floor. WCW, and look at Cactus Jack is holding the knee. WCW, there are no mats outside the ring. It is the C-mat. Going for the cover. Cactus knee really smacked the, the concrete when he came off with that elbow drop from the apron. Front face lock into a neck break. And his head hit the back of the concrete. Both of them hitting hard. And that's the key, you know, this is a non-title matchup. Why Sting would in one, two, and a kick out. Why Sting would involve himself in this type of match, be it non-title, is beyond me, Jim Ross. He's got character, Jess. He's not going to walk away from any challenge. He's crazy. That's what he is, Jim Ross. It ain't character. It's being dumb. Cactus up on the apron here now. Going for it. Six sunset flip. And he got it down on the concrete. And Sting able to kick out. My gosh. They have not made it. Both men have not made it into the ring as of yet. And may not. 
This match is absolutely right. We may never see the ring through this whole bout. Remember, normally in WCW, that move would have been an automatic disqualification. But we've covered the rules, I think, quite well. No disqualification this one, as Cactus ran face first into the steel. Another one into that railing outside the ring. What a wild, crazy match and Sting. Remember those broken ribs, thanks to Big Van Vader and Cactus elevated over. Right over the railing, right out to the ringside area. Sting right over after it. And oh God, his face is smacking. This is nothing but a street fight now, Jim Ross. Sting has it from face lock. Can he get him out? Oh, yeah! 304 pounds. Suplex to the concrete. Will this be all? And Cactus Jack, somehow, someway, able to kick out. I can't believe it how Cactus Jack oh, went oh. over the top. Right at our feet, Jim Ross. shoulder. And amazingly, Jack is keeping it into the ring. I would have expected him to immediately fire Sting out to the floor. He's kicking him with his left leg. His right leg seems to be damaged. Sting ran face first into the turnbuckle. Sting, who has been in a real war with Big Van Vader, finally healing up from the broken ribs. We don't know if he's at 100%, but Cactus will test it because he caught him with that knee and 304 pounds right into the ribcage. This is amazing. I'll tell you what, here's Cactus in this type of boat, and he's actually wrestling him, Jim Ross. Hooks him with a body scissors. Very sound strategy and surprising, perhaps, from Cactus Jack. There is a method to his madness, perhaps. Give it up, buddy. Give it up. You know, Sting could take the easy way out. This is non-title. He could just quit and submit. Cactus Jack. He may be reviving the champion. Sting with the elbows. Catching Cactus in the face. And a right hand. And another right hand. Down goes Cactus. And a right hand. Both men back up. Reaching for whatever they can, Cactus got the eyes. And it's Cactus Jack with a clothesline. Oh my, they both go over, back to the floor. I'll tell you what, you like seeing wrestling here, and that's what it's called, World Championship Wrestling, but this match is called World Championship Street Fight. And why the champion got himself involved in this is totally beyond me. He's a man that will not walk away from the challenge. Look out, Tony Gillum, you've got to get out of there. 
He's a man that might walk away from his title just from the injuries he's going to sustain tonight. They caught in the clothesline. Well, he's not thinking of Big Van Vader now. He's thinking of surviving. He's thinking of winning this one. Jack's going for a chair. He's got it. Caught him. In the sternum with that chair. Whoa. That steel folding chair right look, into the back. Look at the dents in the chair from that one. You can see the chair's dented from that. A sickening thud from that chair on the body of the world's heavyweight champion. I can't for the life of me can imagine why Sting did this. I mean, the guy has everything, the world title, money, anything he could, and he gets involved in a madman match with the craziest man in wrestling, Cactus Jack. Referee is only here to count the fall. That's all. And look at Cactus breaking at the champion's face. Can you imagine Grace and Vader are sitting back and chuckling right now? Cactus going for the pile driver, but his knee gave way. He it's, had him in a pile driver position, Jess, but his knee gave away on it. Absolutely, Sting not, not hurt by that. His, his head never hit the floor, you could tell, or Sting would have been toast. That would have been it for him. He'd have knocked him cold. Cactus crawling back up on the apron. What's this madman going to do now? Oh my, he's up on the second row. Look at him smiling, smiling at the pain that he... Oh, he missed it. Sting moved out of the way, and Cactus hit nothing but the concrete floor. And again, no count out. Don't look for the referee putting on any type of count, pinfalls anywhere on the golf course. Cactus on one leg, thrown up on top. The world's heavyweight champion Sting now. Hammering away. Skudo to chops to the face. A fist to the jaw. Got him up. 300 pounds plus and slams it. Sting now. He's got the chair. Sting's got the chair now. Whoa. But he can't put Cactus down. Again, sliding out, as you said, Jim Ross. Both guys going to the floor. Cactus Jack coming out on top. I'll tell you what. Oh, Harley Race has got to be loving this. Going for the double arm. DDT, he got it. This should be it right here. If Cactus has got enough, referee throws that chair out of sight, hopefully. Here's the cover. Could be over right here. And he got a shoulder up at two. Cactus. Almost incapacitated himself, not able to really 
Like a full cover there. That was a total instinct move by Sting. He doesn't know where he's at at all. Sting got a running start and got that clothesline. And now what's he doing now? The champion. Up on the top rope. Remember, no disqualification. A clothesline off the top. He hit it. He hit it. He's got the leg. He won it. He's got the Wrapping up 1992, The Sheik defeats Onita for the WWA, not the same WWA we just talked about, but this was the World Martial Arts title from Japan. Um, and the reason why I bring up this match, well, Sheik was only 67 years old. Think about that. 60 fucking seven years old, heavyweight champion. Yes, you know, it was a special title nonetheless, though. You go back and you look at the Sheik in his late 60s, still, still putting on the performances that he did. Impressive. In fuck impressive. Now we get to another audio clip. 1993. Razor Ramon versus the 123 Kid. This was a very memorable and famous match for Monday Night Raw. It's early stages. During this match, um, they did something where $10,000. Uh, was involved in the match, and um, one, two, three, kid does a horrible face plant to the outside of the ring, gets knocked out, and then proceeds to do a moonsault, which was beautifully executed, and then one, two, three, kid runs out of the arena with the ten thousand dollars. Now I'm not sharing that match. You could go watch it on WWE's network and all that other shit. But I thought instead I would share with you a little interview that Scott Hall did not too long ago about his memories of face of one, two, three kid, especially in this match it is very entertaining, very funny. And, uh, give it a listen. How fun was it working the, uh, the angle with one, two, three kid, your good buddy, John Walton. Well, I didn't know. I, that was the first time I'd met him was that night. And I remember getting there and we were, you know, been on the road and beat. Right. And he's so excited because he's getting in the and, and they had brought him in, and Vince had laid the angle out to me six months in advance. You know, he goes, well, you know, we've got to turn you baby face. The fans, are, the fans are turning you. And he goes, I don't want to do the same old thing, but you run in and save somebody. So he lays out, I'm going to beat, i got this guy, I want you to, you know, you're going to beat him. Six weeks later, during the Nielsen ratings, you're going to sweeps, you're going to challenge him 10 grand. He's not going to beat you that time, but he's going to steal the money. He's going, then I'm going to have all the other heels comment on, what a loser. And he goes, and I think SummerSlam, you work with DiBiase and beat him with your finish. Six months in advance, that's what we did. Right. And I remember now I'm at TV and I'm beat. I'm laying on the floor, like sleeping. And kid comes up, hey man, how you doing? Like, we're working together, we're working tonight. And I'm like, okay, I'll get with you later, bro. 
You know, like, and so I go to Pat Patterson, what do you want me to do with this guy? And he goes, oh, he can do anything. He does everything. He does anything. I said, no, no, how do you think it should go? Because I'm thinking just treat him like a job guy, then yeah. have him beat me. And he goes, yeah, of course. So I, that's what we did. I told him, you got one thing, bro. What do you want it to be? And he goes, moonsault. So that's what we did. <laughs> it, to the point where it worked so well because I'd known about it, but Vince also said, just keep it to yourself. And I learned the power of that. Like, sometimes you got to kayfabe everybody. Right. And so I remember Papa Shango came up to me, Godfather came up to me afterwards and went, man, did you fail a piss test? And I, went, and, I, I, and I went like, I don't know what's going on, man. I just do what they tell me, bro. I remember. So they, he thought because you did the favors, you, yeah, you've been punished. Well, they just beat me. And yeah. I remember Ray Mysterio, who I met years later, said, man, we watched it in, in Mexico. And we thought like kids knee hit you. We thought you really, like it was a shoot. Yeah. You really beat you. And just, it, and it was actually an angle to get me over. Right. But we liked Kid, and he is such a special guy. Yeah. That it ended up, we both ended up getting breaks. Damn right. Because it was kind of like we were one and done with him, but then he was so talented, it, yeah. he rolled with it. Well, I was talking to Sean a few weeks ago, and then I was watching the, the $10,000 challenge match, and he goes off the top, he's going to do the boom. gimmick. He botches, boom, <sighs> on the concrete. Eats the concrete in Poughkeepsie. Take me through that. What were you thinking? Okay, the, I got his side. The storyline was going to be, you know, the storyline going into it was like, I'm going to, I'm going to kill this guy. Yeah. I'm going to murder him. So I throw him to the floor. I move the mat. I set him up. I'm going to give him razor's edge on the concrete. Yep. He backdrops me on the thing. Yep. Now, never, having only worked with him one time prior, which was just a squash match, I fought myself with it because I didn't realize how good he was. Right. Now, he's going to go to the top and dive off on me onto the floor. Now, I got up quicker because I thought I wasn't sure what his time was going to be. Like, is he there? Is he not there? Like, so I started to turn, and he, I got up too fast. And he wasn't. He was climbing slowly. So then he tried to meet me, and he tripped and ate it on the concrete right at my feet. And, I mean, he hit his head. I remember I looked at. Baby Earl was right there. Earl yeah. having, I looked at him, and Earl went, fuck it, pin him. And, but, I mean, because they're going, you know, we're going off the air live. Yeah. And, and this is this angle we built for. But I'm going, I can't do that. And I look at Vince, and Vince is doing the commentary, and he just looks down. Now, when I hear it back, he wasn't blowing me off. He's just continuing to do his job. Right. And I'm going, oh, what do I do? And I'm going in, and I'm thinking, small package me. Right. Screw it. We got I can't beat you. Right. But he didn't know the events, doesn't know the kid's out. No, yeah. no, and he's out. I mean, kid's out. And I'm looking, and, and Baby Earl's already said, beat him. Yeah. And I'm, looking, and I'm going, what do I do, what do I do? And they're counting, they're going, one minute, one minute. And I'm going, and I'm looking at kid, and he goes, moonsault. I mean, his eyes are rolled back in his head, and he goes, moonsault. And I'm going, just like last time, just like last time, move moonsault. I mean, really making sure, because he's not there. Yeah. I shoot him in, he moves, and he doesn't even look back. He gets up there and just dives back. Covers me, one, two, I kick out, and if you watch the tape back, you can see me and Baby Earl going, get the money! Yeah. Because he gets up like, huh? And he's out of it. Yeah. And then he gets the money, and now I'm thinking, he's supposed to run. Because they're going to film yeah. me through the building. So I'm going, oh, and I'm coming up behind him, and I'm going, oh, he's not running. So I'm going, you know what, I'm just going to tear his head off with the clothesline, knock him through the apron, and maybe we can get out there. And I pull back, and he must have had radar, because he went, <laughs> and he took off. The funny thing was that he happened to have a car waiting for him out there. Oh, yeah, right. All of a sudden, and he's in his gear, and I'm in the snow, like, what? And I learned the power of that. Like, sometimes you got to kayfabe everybody. Right. And so 
I remember Papa Shango came up to me, Godfather came up to me afterwards and went, man, did you fail the piss test? And I, went, and, I, I, and I went like, I don't know what's going on, man. I just do what they tell me, bro. I remember... So they, he thought because you did thought the favors, was, they, you, yeah, you'd be punished. Well, they just beat me. And yeah. I remember Ray Mysterio, who I met years later, said, man, we watched it in, in Mexico, and we thought, like, kid's knee hit you. We thought you really, like, it was a shoot. And yeah. It really be yeah. It just... It, and it was actually an angle to get me over. Right. But we liked kid, and he is such a special guy. Yeah. That... It ended up, we both ended up getting breaks. Damn right. Wrapping up 1993, ECW, Eastern Championship Wrestling. This event that took place this week in 93 was the last major event that was booked by Eddie Gilbert for ECW. Paul Heyman would eventually take over with the book. Main event from this night, and I know a lot of you hardcore ECW original fans will remember this. Eddie Gilbert winning the title of King of Philadelphia over Terry Funk in a Texas chain match. I actually remember that match quite well. Now we go to 1994. And if you've been following these shows over this year, you know that Tanya Harding back in 94 was in demand. After the whole disaster with Nancy Kerrigan, they wanted a booker for Japan. They wanted a booker for different events. They actually did sign her. And if you want to go check out the press conference, it is goofy. You know, it kind of sucks because there was some cool shit involving Conan as well where a drink was dumped in his face. And a lot of people don't know that originally Conan wanted Tanya Harding to throw the drink in Conan's face because he was going to make a joke about Nancy Kerrigan, but they decided not to do that. But basically what ended up happening was Tanya Harding agreed to be the quote-unquote manager for, get this, the Love Machine Art Bar and Eddie Guerrero for a match in Vancouver. So if you want to just go see it, and, you know, look, Tanya Harding said she was an avid wrestling fan. I don't know the truth. It was amazing at that time to read about and see how much some wrestling companies were in demand for Tanya Harding. I mean, you know, what she did with the Nancy Kerrigan thing was fucked up. But do you remember any real personality about her? If you look at the press release, it just, she didn't fit in. But if you want to go check it out, by all means, footage is online. Also, 1994, Owen Hart defeated Razor Ramon to win the 1994 King of the Ring tournament. You know, you look back at uh, King of the Ring 94, not great memories, not great memories. First off, I was originally going to play a montage of Art Donovan doing play-by-play and commentary with Gorilla Monsoon from this. It is so piss-poor pathetic. It is so bad. I mean, it, it just, I didn't even, it was, it's not even worth playing it. For some reason, WWF, and you know, people have tried to make correlations and explain it over the years. You know, at the time, you know, they're trying to do like a coach type thing. And I don't know if it was thought about that deep, you know, but they decided to make Art Donovan, who was an NFL Hall of Famer, do commentary. You know, yeah, he was uh, a popular name in entertainment at the time, was on Letterman a few times, but they decided to make him do commentary with, with Gorilla Monsoon. And if you actually watch this event, it is true. By the end of the pay-per-view, Gorilla Monsoon was pretty much ignoring <laughs> everything that Art Donovan was saying. It was the drizzling shits. But you also look back on it as well, and it was pretty sad because 
you know, at this time, Hulk Hogan had left WWF and went to WCW. And WWF was really trying to push the new generation, you know, the young guys. And they were doing all this funny shit, trying to make it look like Hulk Hogan was over the hill. He was old and this and that. And keep in mind, that in 1994, I think Hulk Hogan was around 40, 41 years old. So he wasn't that old. But what was the main event that took place that night? King of the Ring. Roddy Piper and Jerry Lawler. Roddy Piper is in his 40s at that time. And Jerry Lawler is in his 40s at that time. So just think about that for a minute. Piper, I think, was 43 and Lawler was 44. So they're making fun of Hogan at 41 being over the hill and pushing a new generation. And meanwhile, the main event featured two 40-year-olds. Think about that. And it was kind of funny as well because people did, that did do recaps at that time did bring this up as well. They had the local mayor being interviewed by Todd Pettengill. And his name was William Donald Schaefer. He was the mayor of Maryland. And, um, no, actually, he wasn't the mayor of Maryland. They have many mayors in Maryland. Not that I, I'm, I mean, brain cramp, everyone. He was the governor of Maryland. And when Pettengill interviewed him, you know, if you watch it back, Pettengill is trying to, you know, lead him in the direction that he's a big fan of Roddy Piper because we have the main event, Piper versus Lawler. And, um, what does this Matarazzo end up saying after all of this that his favorite is Hulk Hogan? The guy that WWE's trying to bury is old over the hill and left the company. This fucking governor turns around and says that Hogan is his favorite. <laughs> Pretty funny. And, you know, that weekend wasn't as that great for WCW as well. It's not that big of a deal. But to me, when you make mistakes like this, someone should lose their job over it. That weekend we had WCW Saturday night. And if anybody remembers WCW Saturday night, they would have those shows. They'd have the control center. And they basically would talk about, you know, recent results, upcoming events, upcoming matches, this and that, blah, 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 blah. So this weekend in 1994, WCW was airing their Sunday show. And during it, they're actually talking about how Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan retained their titles at The Clash. Steve Austin retained his title at The Clash that Kevin Sullivan and Cactus Jack would be defending their titles against Orndorff and Rome, Roma at Bash at the Beach. Steve Austin would defend against Ricky Steele. The problem is the clash didn't happen yet. Didn't happen until the following week. They aired the fucking highlight package a week early. So I honestly don't remember at that time, and I was an avid follower of WCW even in the 90s, even before the Monday Night Wars started kicking in. But, you know, looking in retrospect and seeing that, pretty fucking careless. I mean, look, any any company can make a mistake, totally, but that's a pretty big mistake to make if you actually look back and think about it. So, ah, uh, also, you know, for us hardcore fans, 1994, you know, ECW had so many memories, and ECW is all over this episode as well. Um, who could ever forget the Hostile City Showdown 1994 very, very fun event that was is on home video that ECW put out. Main event that night was Sabu defeating Cactus Jack. Uh, old school ECW fans or fans that just want to watch um, old ECW events they may never have seen before. 
Go check out Hostile City Showdown 94 and another one that I'll get into uh, in a moment that is one of my favorite ECW events all, of all time. Absolutely phenomenal. So we'll get that into that in a moment. 1995, WWE holds their second Hall of Fame ceremony. Those inducted this year, the fabulous Moolah, Grand Wizard, Ernie the Cat Lad, Pedro Morales, Ivan Putski, George the Animal Steel, and Antonio Rocca. Just a little trivia. Who inducted Fabulous Moolah into the WWE Hall of Fame? It was none other than Medusa, Alondra Blaze. And wrapping up 1995 this week, another audio clip. Let's see how many could handle the audio, and you'll know what I'm talking about right away. We just had the pay-per-view with Jerry Lawler. Um, lost the Kiss My Foot match against Bret Hart. And Jerry Lawler was talking about how horrible his mouth tasted and his breath and he's chewing gum and brushing his teeth and mouthwash. Well, he was so upset with what happened with Bret Hart that he was going to bring in uh, to wrestle in the WWE to take out Bret Hart, his own dentist, who just so happened to be a pro wrestler. His name, Dr. Isaac Yankum. You might think this is funny, McMahon, but it's not. I can assure you, there is nothing humorous about this. You know what I mean? Oh, gosh. I want to tell you something. Ever since last night, I have been trying to get this stench, this smell out of my mouth. I thought I had terminal halitosis. Bret Hart, I'll give you credit. Your feet are the smelliest there was, the smelliest there is, and the smelliest there'll ever be. I've even had to come here to my best friend, <laughs> Dr. Isaac Yankum, DDS, and he's been working for the past hour and a half on my mouth, and it's not there yet. Wait a minute. Oh, Bret Hart, you have not seen the last of me. I want to tell you something. You're going to pay for this. I promise you, you are going to pay for what you did to me at King of the Ring. And my good friend, as I said, Dr. Isaac... <laughs> Yankum, Yankum, excuse me, DDS has promised me, once he saw what you did to me, that he is gonna extract some revenge himself. Because you see, Bret Hart, before he became the world's greatest dentist, he was also the world's greatest wrestler, under an assumed name. And now, after he saw my mouth, my mouth that used to be so clean, and my breath was as fresh as baby's breath, but now, inside my mouth, he sees plaque, and he sees tartar, and he sees, he sees gingivitis, and I got a canker sore over here, you wouldn't believe. Well, let me tell you something, Bret Hart. He's promised me that he is gonna come back to the WWF and drill his way to the top. And he's gonna start with you. And he's gonna extract each and every one of your rotten teeth with his big right hand. Bret Hart, Dr. Isaac Yankum, DDS, is gonna practice anything but painless dentistry with you. Do you understand? This is even working. Give me that. Give me this. You're gonna get it, Bret Hart! I promise you've not heard the last of the king on this! Nineteen ninety-six, WWE, Titan Sports, files a lawsuit. 
against WCW, this all stems with what we've been talking about in recent weeks. Scott Hall, Kevin Nash being portrayed as Razor Ramon and uh, Diesel. And you go back and you actually read the details in the lawsuit. You know, they had a temporary restraining order. They were trying to get, you know, profits. They were trying to force WCW to do a whole bunch of things to make it perfectly clear to the fans that Hall and Nash are not working for WWF. But remember, the week earlier, when they powerbombed uh, Eric Bischoff through the stage, they specifically said that they don't work for WWF anymore. You can't blame... WWF for filing the lawsuit, but you know, and and that lawsuit would come into play if you remember when WCW went out of business. And if those out there don't know the details behind that, go do your research because uh, you know you'll find it a little bit fascinating. But the a little bit hip hip hypocritical aspect of this lawsuit. Think back to 1991. Because, believe it or not, next week, I believe, in wrestling history is the anniversary where Ric Flair was fired from WCW. He would ultimately go to WWF. And remember, he brought the NWA title, and they pixelated this and that. Well, the reason why they pixelated it, it wasn't just because it just was looked goofy on TV. But WWE, in 1991, was sued from WCW because Ric Flair brought the NWA title to WWF. So it got to the point where they had to pixelate it so they wouldn't, you know, have any issues with WCW. Think about that. WWF has Ric Flair come in portraying that he's still the NWA champion, the real world champion. And then you have WCW doing a little bit different. And, you know, look, I'm sure people that have, you know, beat this lawsuit to death over the years know you know, Razor Ramon, you know, he had similar mannerisms as the Diamond Stud. And, you know, you look at Kevin Nash, I don't think he was doing all that much of the Diesel gimmick. But still, we still have to report it. It was this week in 1996 that they filed that lawsuit against WCW. Now, I said earlier, 1996, you know, ECW memories. Hardcore Heaven 1996 took place. That event has so many cool moments in it. I think the one that probably people always talk about the most is the crazy, you know, spot where Tommy Dreamer was put through uh, three tables by Brian Lee. Also, the ring collapsing during the event, and while it's being repaired, Kimono Wanalea is dancing atop the ECW arena doing a strip tease. But my favorite moment from that night was when Stevie Richards and and Blue Meanie came out for an interview segment. And they've been doing impersonations for several weeks now. And this time, Stevie Richards comes out as Baron Von Stevie. Joey Styles, the people need to know. Rip. It's hurting my voice doing it. Fucking funny. At the blonde, uh, the bald fucking <laughs> wig thing that just kept falling off. And Blue Meanie is Blue Dust with his valet Patricia. It was fucking hilarious. But I'm telling you, if you've never seen ECW Hardcore Heaven 96 and just want to watch some retro stuff, watch this event. It's in my top 10 of all-time favorite original ECW events. A lot of entertainment in that card. I mean, you even think about the progression of the storyline with Salmon and Raven, with Sandman's son and his wife hook up with Raven. A lot, a lot of memorable shit from this night. If you want to go watch a retro 
event. You know, hopefully you could get to see the original event. I don't like the remakes on the WWE Network. You know, it's simple little things like, you know, voicing over the entrance themes and stuff like that. It's not the same. If you could get your hands on footage of the original event as it took place, go check it out. But even with everything that I talked about with 1996 this week, something else took place that in, in the annals of wrestling history, probably the most important moment in the career of Steve Austin. Now, this was King of the Ring that took place this past week. Ultimate Warrior on that card wrestled and defeated Jerry Lawler. I mention that because you look back on it, this was the Ultimate Warrior's last ever pay-per-view match for WWE. That was it. I mean, he showed up at WrestleMania 30, you know, as a recipient of the Hall of Fame, but not other than that, no. I mean, that's it. But um, King of the Ring, the, the tournament took place and Steve Austin won it. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Austin 316 was born this week in history. And um, I want to flash back with the, uh, the speech that Steve Austin cut. It's only about 90 seconds, but it was a very important, powerful speech. Crowd loved it. And following that, you'll get a little treat. Chris Jericho interviewing Steve Austin about the birth of Austin 316. And Steve actually adds a little other tidbit regarding that speech that, um, you know, he, as he called it, hit two grand slams and won at bat. So go check this out. Enjoy. The fourth prestigious King of the Ring, Stone Cold Steve Austin, an incredible victory. The first thing I want to be done is to get that piece of crap out of my ring. Don't just get him out of the ring, get him out of the WWF. Because I've proved, son, without a shadow of a doubt, you ain't got what it takes anymore. You sit there and you thump your Bible and you say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. Talk about your Psalms, talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Come on, that's not necessary. All he's gotta do is go buy him a cheap bottle of Thunderbird and try to dig back some of that courage he had in his prime. As the king of the ring, I'm serving notice to every one of the WWF superstars I don't give a damn what they are. They're all on the list, and that's Stone Cold's list, and I'm fixing to start running through all of them. As far as this championship match is considered, son, I don't give a damn if it's Davey Boy Smith or Shawn Michaels. Steve Austin's time has come, and when I get the shot, you're looking at the next WWF champion, and that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. Obviously, anything but humble. The fourth prestigious king of the ring, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Obviously, the biggest catchphrase of all time, Austin 316. Was that something that you wrote, or did you just say it off the top of your head? Hey, man, you know, check it out, Chris. You know, what happened was we were in the Madison Square Garden, and Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were fixing to go down south to WCW, and they were, that's when the infamous curtain call happened. Right. And uh, they, all those guys from the clique went out there and hugged. And so those guys went down south, and Shawn Michaels and Triple H, who had also you know, been, been a part of the big hug, they broke kayfabe. Uh, you know, and, and, and Madison Square Garden, dude, that's hallowed ground. Absolutely. 
you don't break kayfabe back in the day in Madison Square Garden. So those guys went down south. Uh, Shawn Michaels, very tempestuous or temperamental back in the day. You know, yes. he rubbed Shawn the wrong way, and he had a real bad attitude. And Vince couldn't put the screws to him because he was his number one guy. He was his world champion. So Triple H was going to win the King of the Ring in 1996. He was going to get a big shove. But because of that curtain call, Vince had to put the heat on somebody, and he put it on Triple H. So I remember we was up there in Lowell, Massachusetts one day, somewhere about there, and I'm walking across the parking lot, and I didn't know Vince real well at the time. And uh, he goes, hey, Steve, you got a second? And I said, yeah, man, what's going on? He said, well, I just want to let you know in two weeks you're going to win King of the Ring. So I said, well, okay. And I just went on about my business, you know. Yeah. So I was like plan B. So, you know, none of this would have never happened, Chris, had not had they not done that curtain call. And, you know, Triple H would have got that win. So, as it turns out, we go to uh, Milwaukee, Mecca Arena. My first match is with Mark Merrow. And he does a little whirly gig movement. And he kicks me in the mouth, busts my lip wide open. Right. They take me to the hospital during the middle of the show. Wow. I get 14 stitches to, get 14 stitches to close my lip. I come back, and we're going to cut the match down so I ain't got to, you know, screw my lip up and Vader had done a number on Jake the Snake Roberts' ribs, so Jake was already theoretically incapacitated to a degree. I would take his, you know, advantage of his ribs that were busted up by Vader, take off the ace bandages, hit him with the stunner, and, you know, win the king of the ring. That's what happened Right. Uh, in a fairly short match. Uh, so, you know, to kind of protect the, the mouth and the stitches. So anyway, before that match happened, I come rolling back into the ambulance, and I'm still in my ring gear, and... Man, if this if, if Michael P.S. Hayes wouldn't have come up to me and told me, hey, man, I just want to let you know that while you were gone, Jacob Snake Robert Roberts cut a religious-based promo on you, so you might want to remember that when you do your King of the Ring speech. And I said, hmm. And instantly, the John 316 popped into my mind because me being the big football right. player I am back in the day, anytime someone kicked the field goal or uh, extra point after a touchdown, there would always be a John 316 sign in, in the uh, football stadium. Right. So I said, ah, oh, that's it, Austin 316. And that's all I had. And so we go out there. I win the match, go up there. Michael Hayes does uh, the little interview. And, uh, boy, I start rolling. I start running Jake down about getting a cheap ball of Thunderbird and get his ass <laughs> out of the WWE and all this other stuff. And, uh, you know, basically just off the cuff, I said, you know, you sit there and thump your Bible and say your prayers, and it didn't get you anywhere. You talk about your Psalms, talk about John 316. Austin 316 says, I just whooped your ass. <laughs> and, dude, that's pretty strong back in the day. Sure thing. So, so anyway, so that, that happened. I hit a grand slam with that one, and I kept run, running my, you know, my promo, which was just totally off the cuff, total shoot. And then this was back when Vince was, was announcing. And on the RF mic, the house mic, I could hear him kind of wrapping things up. So I'm thinking, oh, Vince is trying to throw to another match. I need to wrap up this promo and get out of this. Right. So I just said, you know, uh, whoever gets the shot, whether it's Davey Boy or Shawn Michaels, you're looking at the next WWF champion. And that's the bottom line because Stone Cold said so. So it was total chance, total fluke, and I hit two grand slams at one at bat that I was never supposed to get in the first place. 1997, Bill Goldberg makes his pro wrestling debut. Now, everybody always thinks of Hugh Mars. Nah, well, you know what? Technically, that's not his pro wrestling debut. This week in 1997, Goldberg wrestled a dark match 
on Monday Nitro in Macon, Georgia. He actually wrestled under the name Bill Gold, and he defeated Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, who was training him. So when you look back at Goldberg's first ever pro wrestling match, it's actually this week when he defeated Buddy Lee Parker. Also this week in 1997, we had a memorable edition of Raw. It opened up with the Nation of Domination, and there were a lot of questions as to why Ahmed Johnson turned on the fans and joined up with the Nation of Domination. The promo that Ahmed Johnson cut, it's memorable. I think a lot of people will remember it. But what was important about this uh, segment was we were introduced to a new faction that debuted with um, Brian Adams, Crush. He actually showed up at ringside with three other guys on motorcycles, and they announced in the ring that they were the Disciples of Apocalypse. They would end up brawling with the Nation of Domination that night. They were instantly over with the crowd. Everybody loved it, and it was a real. It was probably the best way to introduce the fans to the DOA. Unfortunately, if you actually go back and you watch that segment, realize when you hear the promo that Ahmed Johnson cuts, talking about how when he re returned from injury that Vince McMahon didn't do the right thing, and yeah, they'd thrown the race card around, and you know that's what made these promos memorable at the time. But I think a lot of people forget that Ahmed Johnson actually seriously injured his knee during this segment. So he's just back from injury. He's cutting a promo, and during the brawl with DOA, he injured his knee. And if you go watch the footage and you just pay close attention to Ahmed Johnson, he's hopping around, and look, you don't want to see anybody injured, but man, was that fucking bad timing and bad luck for Ahmed Johnson. But for those out there that don't have access to the network that want to relive here is how WWE opened up on Raw this week, 
Everybody is wondering why. Why did Ahmed Johnson join the nation of domination and what an intimidating, intimidating presence the new nation has here in the WWF. Great broadcast for you, ladies and gentlemen. Two hours live right here in Detroit. All right, gentlemen. One question for you, Ahmed Johnson. Why, Ahmed? Why? First of all, if y'all don't shut the hell up, I'm gonna come out there and kick all your asses! And I'm gonna start out with soon. Why? Act yourself why, white man! You know why! I did what I had to do. I came out here, I bust my butt, I tried to please these people, I tried to get my shot at the belt. You think they back me up? They don't back me up for a belt, no. Don't back me up? The crew, my crew backed me up. Y'all didn't back me up, why? Because I'm a black man. Did you back me up, this my man? When I came back from my injury, did you back me up for a shot at the belt? You were gonna get your opportunity. I was, was, yeah. Martin King was gonna live another 10 years, but he didn't. He did it because he tried to be nice and breathe peace, and he got shot down for trying to be nice. Is he doing a fair con? Is he dead? No. Why? Because he don't want to preach the peace. He preach like it is, by any means necessary. But I tell you what, you and your superhero, The Undertaker, I ain't got no respect for him no more. Any man that listens to another man is a low down Dirty slave dog. Isn't the Undertaker one listen to Paul Bear? Dead man, listen up. It's for you. Like I said before, you put your hands on me. You won't be dead enough. Just remember the tattoo, because you will see it again. Bishop Man, did you hear what he just said? The reason he came back, he was held down. The reason he came with the nation is because you turned your back. And all these people turned their back. That's why he came in a nation of domination, punk. And why? Why did you feel compelled to form a new nation? Let me tell you something. You know, like I've got out here before and said, the truth kills everybody. The reason I fired them punk is because they couldn't get the job done. But guess what? Let me tell you the most fear threat in this world today is seeing Powerful, intelligent black human beings, black men, get together for one call. That's what you're gonna see right here. You know what the most feared thing on this planet was? Seeing Malcolm X and Martin Luther King coming together. But guess what? That's what you're seeing right here tonight. And you know what you're gonna see? We're gonna get the job done by any means necessary. What you see right here is the four most dominant men in the World Wrestling Federation. And what he said is when four men come together, there's not a damn thing that can stop us, including you. You better straighten your face up. If I see you cross your eyes at one of us one more time, it'll tell what am I do to you.
I don't care who you are. I don't care who checks you, sign. You cross your eyes at one of us again, you're going to wish God you were never born. All right, you must feel pleased of your victory last week over The Undertaker. <laughs> That's to say the least. You see, I'm damn proud of myself because I single-handedly beat The Undertaker right here in the middle last Monday night. So you're right, I'm damn proud. I'm also damn proud of our nation. But let me tell you the best thing of all, I'm proud of my brother, Ahmed Johnson, because he finally gets his chance to take down that Undertaker and prove to everyone that we are the champions. You see, Vince McMahon, we rule the World Wrestling Federation, and we will do it by any means necessary! We are the nation of domination! And I can't... Oh, wait a minute. Here comes Crush on a Harley Davidson, it looks like. Here comes Crash and there are more. got fired from the nation and he crush has brought reinforcements and they're big you know I can't remember hearing so much crap in my entire life let me tell you something Farouk you never fired me punk because I quit Allow me to introduce you to a real brotherhood, D-O-A, the Disciples of Apocalypse. Let me tell you something, punk. This is a real brotherhood. We live together. We ride together. And guess what else we do, McMahon? We damn sure fight together. Oh, the, the fight is on. And the disciples of the apocalypse, the DOA, hooking it up here. Nothing more than a street fight. Nothing more than a game fight. It's like a drive-by. I don't think these WWE officials want any part of this situation. Another match from that night that I remember vividly. And I'm sure some of you out there will remember this because I bring it up. You know, this was right at the time when ECW had their first ever pay-per-view. And they still had Jerry Lawler feuding with Tommy Dreamer and e extremely crappy wrestling and blah, 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 blah. And we would have Paul Heyman show up periodically on Raw. And you would have Rob Van Dam and Sabu wrestling as ECW wrestlers on Raw. So that same night, as the DOA made their debut, Sabu wrestling on behalf of ECW, took on Flash Funk. 
And Paul Heyman was doing commentary. And people will remember this night because the finish of the match, you know, Sabu tried to put Flash Funk to Cold Scorpio through a table on the outside, and the table did not break. And Sabu, immediately when he tried to put through him through the table and didn't break, he like does some like really retarded little flip onto Flash Funk, thinking it's going to break the table. It does nothing. And you see Sabu laying there, and he's like, what the fuck? This sucks. And Flash Funk is probably like, what the fuck is going on, too? And Sabu, you can see, he's just like, fuck it. He climbs up the apron and puts Scorpio successfully through the table. Uh, it was just something that I always remember going back when ECW was doing a little invasion thing with WWE. So there you go. Uh, 1998, another audio clip. Um, we had the television in-ring debut of Edge. Unfortunately, his debut match did not go as planned. Only lasted about two minutes. We are about to uh, see the debut of Edge, and we are back here in the Frank Irwin Center. Edge on his way to the ring. All we know about this young man is that we are totally as some sort of tortured soul. I know he's 6'4", about 240 from Toronto. He's in the ring right now, and he's pretty impressive looking. Edge and uh, Jose Estrada representing Los Mariquas. And Jose, I guarantee you, is a tough son of a gun, a great challenge for Edge here. Oh, man. And Edge taking uh, Jose down with a great deal of aggression. Well, that's what I've heard the same as you, Jared. This guy's supposed to be tormented. I mean, every time I've seen him, he seems to be in some sort of some sort of a rage. I mean, he's just he's either screaming at the top of his lungs or he's just he's a hard man to get close to. I can assure you that. Look at this. Seemingly on the edge of exploding at any time and drop kick on the outside. Watch it. And look at this great move. Oh, man. Big service all over the top. And the edge with tremendous force. He nailed a Jose and and Jose Estrada's not moving very much here, King. I think Jose is out. Jose Estrada hasn't moved here from taking that blow from Edge. And a referee, Tim White's got a 10 count to work with. And that's all of it. Edge will win his first match. I'm sure not the way he wanted, but he's a winner, needless to say. Well, ordinarily on that move, look, look at the edge. He's over the edge. Ordinarily on that move, your legs would straddle your opponent's head, but if I saw it right, it looked like the edge landed square on top of Jose's head. Trying to take another look at it here. Edge has, uh, in a very non-auspicious debut, has won his first match in the WWF. But take a look. Let's see if, let's see if I'm right here. Watch, your leg. Watch Jose's head. Oh, yes. Is the, uh, the right leg, what's the right leg here? Right on the head oh. and snapping a uh, Jose's neck there. And man, there's no more dangerous injury in this game than a neck injury. You know, you look back at that match and you do feel bad for Edge. But at the same time, though, I mean, Jorge Estrada did really suffer a pretty serious neck injury. He would return to WWE. But when he returned, I mean, they just put him in a couple of matches on Super Astros, and then he got released about a year later. 
But that's how Edge's in-ring debut began in the WWE this week in 1998. We also had the storyline at the time where Kane uh, was feuding with Steve Austin. And they did these little things where if uh, Kane didn't defeat Steve Austin, um, he would set himself on fire. And, and you'll hear Kane and Steve Austin repeated in uh, next week's episode. So this actually lead to uh, some championship um, title changes. And I think one that I think a lot of people out there will be surprised, may have forgot about, but we'll talk about that next week. Now we go to 2000, Monday Night Raw, memorable 24-7 rule, Crash Holly winning the title against Gerald Briscoe, losing the title, Gerald Briscoe, Gerald Briscoe's just won the hardcore title. That's my favorite moment ever in the hardcore. As, as weird as that sounds, Gerald Briscoe pinning Crash Holly while he was sleeping made me pop more than any other 24-7 rule. They did the bouncy balls. They did the fucking airport. They brawled in the lake. Just something about that just made me laugh my ass off. But this week on Monday Night Raw, Gerald Briscoe would defeat Crash Holly once again for the hardcore title. And then Pat Patterson celebrating in the back with Gerald Briscoe drinking champagne goes and grabs the stunt bottle, you know, the trick beer bottle, bashes it over Briscoe's head, pins him, he wins the hardcore title. So we had the Stooges both win the title this week in 2000. And we also had a, a match that a lot of people may have forgot about on Raw. Eddie Guerrero, they were doing a little storyline of him with China. You know, being possibly an item. Well, Eddie Guerrero, because business is business, you know, does the, I think, the schoolboy and rolls up China for, you know, a surprising win. You know, not surprising that Eddie Guerrero would win, but just the way it went down on television. Now we get to 2001. Three audio clips, three debuts on WWE television. Now, first, one of the clips that I'm not sharing in this episode is a King of the Ring match between Kurt Angle and Shane McMahon. Street fight. And you, you know, you look back on it, I'm sure people will nitpick, because I remember at the time, you know, referee doing, you know, breaks at the ropes and this, this, and that, even though it's a street fight. But, man, oh, man. If, you have ne if, it's, if you're a younger fan and you have never seen the 2001 King of the Ring street fight between Shane McMahon versus Kurt Angle, stop what you're doing and please watch that match. I watched it again last night before I did this episode to just try to remember not only the brutality. I mean, that sickening thud of Shane McMahon's head hitting the, the concrete floor was sick. Being put through those plate glass windows was sicker. But when you realize, and I really mean this, and this is, you know, this is all these years later, when you put in perspective that Shane McMahon never had formal training and sure he trained of course but when you actually pay close attention in this match between him and Kurt Angle you know sometimes you watch matches with two people and someone is so talented that it is just very hard a suspension of disbelief that somebody would beat another I'll give you a good example Carmella defeating Oscar even if there's fuckery or anything else the, to have the believability that Carmella could last even two minutes with Oscar in a match, it's hard to believe it 
All right, and I'm just saying, just on I'm not shitting on Kamel. I'm just using that as an example. Think back to 2001. You have Kurt Angle, who's in his prime, all right, or just starting his prime, taking on Shane McMahon. And yes, it's street fight rules, but still, you just think back at that time. Kurt Angle should wipe the floor with Shane McMahon. Shane McMahon put on a performance that, when you actually watch this match from Bella Bell. You do not have any suspension of disbelief where you say, ah, there's, there's no fucking way Shane's going to win. It's, it just, it's not believable. You don't feel that way. You honestly feel that Shane McMahon is really kicking ass with Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle won the match, and that was the right decision to, to go. But when you see the physicality and the moveset and just the, the story that this match told... It is easily one of my favorite matches of all time. It's pretty, you know, brutal, some of the physicality towards the end. But still, it is just fucking phenomenal. You got to go out of your way. And if you haven't seen it since then, go watch it again. It'll give you a newfound appreciation for Shane McMahon as far as in-ring work. And that's why when people in recent years were complaining, oh, Shane McMahon, he didn't survive his theory. He's going to wrestle at WrestleMania. Look at this motherfucker did in 01. And you're going to complain? Please, seriously. So anyway, uh, also 2001, WWE presented their first ever episode, first ever season of Tough Enough. Aired on MTV. I think it was Jacqueline, Taz, Al Snow were a couple of trainers. I mean, we had Maven on that show, Chris Nowinski, Josh Matthews, uh, Taylor. It's a memorable uh, season, and it kicked off tough enough. The very beginning kicked off this week in 2001. So now we get to three debuts, WWE, this week in 01. Two happened on Monday Night Raw. One happened on King of the Ring pay-per-view. I don't know which of the three you enjoyed the most, but we're going to share all three right now. And after it's done, I will tell you which one I enjoyed the most when it happened that night in 2001. The first one we'll get into was a hardcore match that took place on Raw at Madison Square Garden, I should add. We had Rhino defeating Test to win the hardcore championship. And then we had a surprise appearance, the debut of WCW and former ECW wrestler, Mike Awesome. The impact on the suplex had bent the security railing. And now these two men try to keep our cameras up for them as best we can. Remember, pinfalls can occur anywhere at any time. And the referee following these two men, Test, the hardcore champion, Rhino, the challenger. And these two men now throwing caution to the, to the wind. No padding, just concrete and other objects surrounding these two athletes. I'd like to see these two guys crawl up to the top of the Empire State Building. Downstairs goes Rhino. As these two men have fought back into the, the the bowels of the Madison Square Garden. Downstairs is a good thing. They can go down to the basement. They can come up on the street corner. They can go into Penn Station, take the train up to Connecticut, and score a pinfall there. Oh, look out here. Yes, trying to make his way up top. Kicking Rhino on the head, trying to... Creates some distance here. 
And just like Rhino did test 10 days ago to bruise those ribs, Test pulls that right out of Rhino's playbook, and now Rhino incapacitated for at least a moment, and Test has climbed high. This takes a lot of clicks, but let me tell you! Test driving his elbow right in the heart of the Rhino. Test now going for the cover. Here we go. Should be over here, but it's not. Look at this. Test runs the scaffold. Wham! Drives Rhino right in between those two tables to the hard concrete floor of Madison Square Garden. Another right hand by Test. 6-7-2-82 against the Man Beast and former hardcore champion Rhino. Oh, this could be a bad ride for Rhino. To the wall there and Rhino holding that knee he may have he may have been injured and that wouldn't surprise me or you Paul I'm sure and this no man. hardcore rules are very very dangerous no man is safe has to defend the championship 24 hours a day seven days a week <laughs> Rhino countering oh. test we just got backdropped on the concrete <laughs> that ramp leads right down onto the street all the way down to the street level. Here we go! Here we go! The cover! He got it! And it's over! He got it! Rhino, the hardcore champion here in the WWF! World Wrestling Federation hardcore champion, Rhino! Rhino almost broke test in half. And wait a minute. What the hell's that? It's Mike Awesome! Mike Awesome's a WCW guy! There's a WCW wrestler! Second debut I want to share was the King of the Ring pay-per-view. We had the main event match between Steve Austin versus Chris Jericho versus Chris Benoit. And during the match, towards the end, we actually had someone jump the guardrail, put Steve Austin through a table, and if you go back and you look at it, it looks like Steve Austin really hurt his neck during that spot. But it was the WWE debut of none other than Booker T. Jericho running through the pressure. Oh, Jericho looking for the walls of Jericho. Austin has, a, has been battered and hammered. Austin rolling to the outside, and the two Chris's now. And the WWE title match is between now Jericho and Benoit. Snap suplex by, by Benoit. Man, these guys have put their bodies through hell here tonight. And there's a cover by Benoit. And Jericho will not stay down. He kicks out. Benoit, uh-oh. Here we go. The rattlesnake is alive and well. And kicking with a chair. Also got the steel chair. And just Benoit. Just baseball slid right through the chair. Rimming Austin right in the face. Front face lock by... Benoit countered as Jericho tosses Benoit to the outside. Jericho, the only man left in the ring. 
the WWF champion Stone Cold got that chair shot right to his face. Finally, for the debuts, we had a stalker for weeks upon weeks upon weeks of Sarah, Undertaker's ex-wife. And it was this week of 2001, we finally learned that the stalker for The Undertaker would be none other than Diamond Dolls Page. Who is it? the question why why did I why did Diamond Dallas Page go after the Undertaker like this well I'll tell you I'll tell you exactly why because if you want to make an impact in this business you go after the biggest the meanest the baddest dog in the yard. And once you find that dog, if you want to get the very best of them, you make it personal. Real personal. And then, hey, you find that dog's weakness. Well, Taker, you are obviously that dog. And you've been telling people for years that this ring right here is your yard. We'll see. But up to a few weeks ago, Taker, you have never shown weakness. I mean, never shown weakness. That is, up until a few weeks ago, when you told Stone Cold Steve Austin that if he ever, ever, 
messed with your family, you'd make him famous. Duh. Taker, you idiot. Stone Cold Steve Austin's already famous. But it did get me to thinking, good God. When you said what you said about your family, dead man, you didn't sound so dead. As a matter of fact, you sounded very alive. And for you, son, that's a sign of weakness. Taker, think about it. Remember when you used to say, I've slept through things that make most people's hair turn gray. Remember that? Okay, you didn't say it exactly like that, but you remember that. You also said you weren't afraid of anything. Foul, I'm gonna call you on that right now. Taker, I'm calling you a liar. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I am. Cause take a look at him now. He's running around his house, locking all the windows, locking the doors. I can just see him now calling Vince McMahon this morning. Mr. McMahon, I can't possibly come in and compete tonight. I can't leave my wife, Sarah. There's a madman, there's a stalker trying to get to my wife, Sarah. You're scared to death. How's it feel, son? I'll tell you what, there is a positive side to this. Diamond Dallas Page has made your wife, Sarah, famous. And speaking of famous, nobody, and I mean nobody, deserves to be more famous than the king of Bada Bing, the master of the diamond cutter. Nobody deserves to be more famous than B, D, D, P. Because my whole life, I've been wanting to be in this business, I was eight years old, my whole life people have been telling me, until you've been to the CSO, until you've been to the show, until you've been to the very top of our business, you're never really famous. So Taker, trust me, I'm using you to get to the top of this business. And you can take it to the bank. Whether I gotta buy a ticket or not, I will see you at King of the Ring. You got a problem with me? Cool. Taker, I'm begging you, make me famous! <laughs> Good God, Paul. This WCW star has just impacted the entire industry. Big time, the invasion is on, and WCW has made one hell of an impact here on Raw tonight. Well, here comes some security, and, and the stalker, DDP, leaving right through the crowd. This WCW star has, has shaken the foundation here. Page says he's going to be at the King of the Ring. And by God, I promise you, so will The Undertaker be, Paul. He will be there. Now, when I try to think back to 2001 and 
taking in all three of those debuts, I probably popped the most for Booker T because I wanted to see Booker T in WWE more than anybody else. Diamond Dallas Page's stalker was a little bit confusing. And yes, DDP's done many interviews over the years that he actually wanted to go a different route. And after you saw King of the Ring that week following him being revealed as a stalker, he got annihilated from Undertaker. So all of that hype to lead to that, it just felt like we were a little bit shortchanged on on the whole storyline. Diamond Dallas Page did a phenomenal job trying to make it work. Um, it actually, you know, was fun. And Mike Awesome's was a hell of a lot of fun as well. Seeing him run up the parking area, you know, there's a little, like, turn, a little bend, so you couldn't see him coming from the side. That was a lot of fun as well. And it was just very creative the way they did that. But looking back on it, I could honestly say Booker T I enjoyed the most. Diamond Dallas Page, probably second. After seeing King of the Ring, I would have said third. But Mike Awesome's was fun as well. So there you go. 2002, we have the King of the Ring. Brock Lesnar defeated Rob Van Dam in the finals to win King of the Ring. That entitled him a championship match at SummerSlam. This was the King of the Ring that... Shortly before, Steve Austin walked out, did not want to wrestle the King of the Ring qualifying match against Brock Lesnar on Raw. And you see how close Steve Austin's walkout was to this King of the Ring pay-per-view. So, Also in 2002, only lasted two days. I think back, seriously, think back to all of the abuse the people in the business have given towards Vince Russo that he sabotaged WCW. He put them out of business. He didn't have a, that great of a creative mind. For every 30 good, uh, every thoughts that he made, one would be great. You heard all this nonsensical shit over the years. You know, people in the business want to make those claims. All right, they have a reason to do so. They worked in that industry. They were behind the scenes. They lived through it. We're just fans. All right, we see things on TV. I felt so bad for those all those times that he was getting blamed for shit that was happening in TNA that he had nothing to do with. All right, even if he was still working there, some he wasn't responsible for every little thing you saw. But when you think back to 2001, WCW had just gone out of business. I was doing hotlines back then. There are articles still from mainstream people online from 2001. And people week after week after week leading up to that would shit on Russo, shit on Bischoff, hated the storylines, hated the creative control that Hogan had and the powers that Nash had and others. There was a lot of bad uh, moments that led up to the demise of WCW. AOL Time Warner merger was the nail in the coffin. And Mish and I, on a recent episode of Breakfast Soup, got into very detailed discussion about that. And there's no disputing it. AOL Time Warner's merger is what put WCW out of business. Okay, you want to look at it in a creative scale? It led up to that, of course, you know, but still, I'm not going to get into that whole thing now. But the reason why I say all this is because this week in 2002, WWE brought back Vince Russo as their head TV writer. Now, at that time, they had, I think it was Dave Lagana and Paul Heyman that were doing input as well, and... Him being brought back as head writer lasted two days. Now, Vince Russo has done interviews over the years, 
why he felt it lasted such a short period of time. He was actually there for, I think, three weeks. But as far as head writer, two days. And, you know, there's been stories that he actually wanted the invasion angle to be a little bit different. You know, some of the things being thrown out there don't sound the greatest. But my point out of all of this is that if Vince Russo sucked so bad in the industry as it appeared in 2001, why would WWE bring him back in 2002? Yes, you know, they realized quickly that they made a mistake. But even the notion of thinking about bringing him back, I don't know. <laughs> it seems like WWE gets a big-time pass for that. So, you know, yes, I am a supporter of Vince Russo. I've always been. All right, I, It doesn't mean I don't agree with everything he said. I have disagreed with him on a lot of things over the years. Just a lot of people find it convenient not to bring those up because they want to just, you know, try to make it seem that, you know, I'm a, I'm a diehard fanboy. You know what I mean? So, But still, this week of 2002, Vince Russo brought back. Why? If he was that bad, why? Now, also... This week in 2002, NWA presented their first ever weekly pay-per-view tapings under the name NWA Total Nonstop Action, NWA TNA. And, you know, you go back and you look at those cards. Ken Shamrock winning the vacated NWA heavyweight title. You look back at, you know, AJ Styles, you know, becoming the X Division Championship. America's Most Wanted being introduced to wrestling fans. You know, some hardcore stuff. There's, you On paper, there's a lot of memorable moments for NWA TNA's be, beginnings. But you also go back and you actually watch and, and listen to some of the stuff. You know, NWA TNA was pretty distasteful in a lot of ways. All right. Sure, I know a lot of people are going to say, well, the times were different. No, it was only 2002. It's not like it was 80 years ago. You know, having, um, it was supposed to be Lenny and Lodi, and instead it ended up being Lenny and Bruce because Lodi was injured. They came out doing a gay tag team called the Rainbow Express. And listen to the commentary of Don West being so irate at the fact that they're gay. All right, was Don West hate gays? Absolutely not. But they were trying to play off as prima donnas on, in the ring and kissing each other's hand instead of tagging in. And it made Don West sick. Did I say Don King? I hope I didn't say Don King. It made Don West sick. Then you also see the, the storyline where the Dubs did not want to wrestle the Rainbow Express because of their alternative lifestyle. What about Ed Ferrara? You know, last week we played that little clip of... Uh, Jim Cornette spitting in the face of Ed Farrar for what he did with Oklahoma. And when Jim Cornette talked about his dreadlocks, this and that, well, you see on the debut editions of NWA TNA, you have Ed Farrar in dreadlocks, and he's like a perv. And I took the screenshot of him grabbing Francine's tits. And, you know, I met Francine a couple of times in 2002. All right, Chilla Convention, hung out, you know, some establishments after, you know, she was good friends with Daphne at the time. She is one of the coolest chicks I ever met in, in wrestling, you know, but she went along with this and she was a trooper. She did not like it, but you know, she understood it wasn't, you know, it was just part of the storyline with Ed Farrar and other stuff. But you look at some of the things back then and I, and you know, it's fun. one thing I will say, you know, people look back on it and because the knockouts were in cages, 
They're like, oh, they're dancing in cages. Well, if you've, you know, I, that I think is in defense of NWATNA. That's people just trying to find anything to bitch about. Because if you've ever gone to like a strip club or a rave event, this, I can't tell you how many times, even going back to my fucking late teens, going to clubs and seeing women dancing in cages, stuff like that. Some of the reasons why they were dancing in cages so men wouldn't be able to try to grope them. You know, but some of the criticism that TNA got at that time was a little over the top. But if you go back there, there's a lot of moments I don't think NWA TNA would be very proud of in this generation. So now, since we talked a little bit about 2002 just now, I decided let's flash back to 2002 outside of pro wrestling. We've been doing these segments the last two weeks all the responses back has been overwhelmingly positive. I don't think anybody's complained yet. You know what, for those that may not know, or this may be, maybe it's the first episode you're tuning in. What I do every week now is I will take a particular year in history and I will highlight what went down for the particular week or the particular month for that respective year. And yes, I got the idea from watching the WWE Network with the old school where you'd watch a house show and then on the bottom they'd show a ticker of things that happened at that time. The only difference is WWE would talk about the whole year. Since I'm in the month of June right now, I'm only talking about June. So we flash back to June 2002. And for those that are curious or may have forgot some of the things that went down in 2002 outside of pro wrestling. And I got two audio clips that I know one of them you will absolutely enjoy. First, first off, and as I said, this is all June 2002. Our vice president at the time, Dick Cheney, serves as our acting president for two and a half hours while President George W. Bush undergoes a colonoscopy. Canadian singer Avril Lavigne, she comes out with her debut album, Let's Go. The first ever episode of American Idol, the judges at the time, Simon Cowell, Paul Abdul, and Randy Jackson. It premieres on Fox. Paul McCartney gets married to uh, Heather Mills. Charlie Sheen gets married to Denise Richards. The movie The Born Identity, starring Matt Damon, hits movie theaters. Two deaths that are remembered, 2002, June. John Gotti passed away from throat cancer at age 61. And legendary baseball announcer, one of the greatest baseball announcers of all time, Jack Buck, died at age 77. Scotty Bowman retires from the NFL as a coach. I think he had won his ninth Stanley Cup at that time. 102nd annual U.S. Uh, Golf Open. Tiger Woods shoots a 277 to win the whole thing. Phil Mick Mickelson came in second, three strokes behind. 101st edition of the Women's French Open. Serena Williams defeats Venus Williams, 7-5-6-3. Boxing. Lennox Lewis retains the WBC World Heavyweight title with an eight-round knockout of Mike Tyson. Here's a little audio flashback of the final round in that fight. This is by far the worst beating Mike Tyson has ever taken. It's batting practice for Lennox Lewis now. One fastball after another. He hits him and then still leans on him. I don't know why. I wonder what all those people who think of Tyson as the Tyson of 10 and 12 years ago are thinking now as they watch him absorb this punishment almost without any return. 
They tune in for a fight, and they're Listen getting one. Here. This no, guy's not quitting. He's not Listen doing anything. No. no, you understand? Listen to me. You're fighting for the heavyweight championship award again. You understand? Not many people can do that. You understand? Now look, I'm not going to sit out there and just let you do this. You understand? You have to throw your punches. You understand? For God's sake, you have two hands. You understand? Just let your hands go. Yes, you can. No, let your hands go. I want your hands to move. You done took this guy's best shot. This guy got nothing yours. for you. The guy you took his best shot. This guy's getting tired. It's time for you to go to work, brother. Come on, man. Go to work. You you take hard. George, you call it batting practice. That's what it is. And this is the time maybe your corner should come in and rescue your fighter. It's not going to get any better for him. I have an old warrior that's taking a beating like that. And he doesn't show me anything this round. I'm going to throw the towel in myself. I'm going to keep him on the stool. Batting practice numbers that Barry Bonds will be impressed with. 31 of 46 for Lennox Lewis and around 7, 67% Tyson. Landing just four punches, throwing only 17. Tyson told his corner he'd had enough. I believe, George, you're right. He might have been looking to end the fight on his stool. He, he seems virtually useless for now, just taking punishment, maybe looking and hoping to bait Lewis into one punch. Yeah, I would give him the alternative. Look, Tyson, you put up this round or I'm going to stop the fight. I'm not just going to let your brains get beaten out doing nothing. Mike Tyson's stock is falling faster than Enron. Oh, big good right shot. hand by Mike Tyson. If you don't finish your guy off, that's what you can expect. You're not doing anything to him, so he'll do something to you. There's another good right hand. And that mean he's aiming to come back on that right hand on top. Tyson knows he needs a knockout to win. He's never had a knockout past the seventh round. Lennox Lewis tripled Mike Tyson with a big uppercut, and Eddie Cotton separates the fighter. He's called it a knockdown, thinking that Tyson's knee touched the canvas. I'm not sure I saw that. I don't think I did either, Larry. Mike Tyson highly motivated to come into this fight, hoping that this fight would redeem his, not only his career, but his whole life. Oh, he's doing a good job. He's got heart. Yeah, he's you can't take that from him. Big right hand from Lewis, and Tyson goes down for the third time in his career. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's over. Lennox Lewis cements his legacy as one of the best heavyweight champions of this era. Nobody should be able, there's no one in the world can take that from Lennox Lewis now. He is no doubt the best heavyweight of all time. What he's done clearly puts him on top of the heat. He fought a virtually perfect fight, George. There's no doubt about he it, can, he did everything. He controlled right. it from the beginning. He was patient. He never let Tyson get off. Tyson looked old and slow. 
and you know, George, when you look back at history, at fighters like Tyson from Dempsey to Marciano to Fraser, all of those fighters retired at the age of 32, and they were near the end of the rope at the age of 30. This type of fighter has to put so much effort into fighting the way he does that it's hard to sustain it. Where the boxer punchers like Joe Lewis and Muhammad Ali. Even Lennox Lewis. And Lennox Lewis and Larry Holmes all were able to fight closer to their mid-30s. It doesn't require that kind of maniacal conditioning to fight that fight. And we just saw a masterpiece of a boxer puncher in Lennox Lewis tonight. All I can say is, that's right. Wrapping up June 2002, the NBA Finals. The Lakers defeat the Nets four games to none. The MVP of the Finals, Shaquille O'Neal. Anybody that's into science, I don't know if you've ever heard the name Kevin Warwick. I've actually been uh, not a fan of his, but I've been enamored by his work for the last 20 years. It was this month in 2002 that the first ever direct electronic communication experiment between the nervous system of two humans is actually carried out by Mr. Warwick. If you've never heard of him, do some searches on YouTube. You'd be fascinated with the work this man has done. And for those that are curious what the number one song was this time in 2002, it was none other than Vanessa Carlton with her song, A Thousand Miles. All right, enough of that song. Never, never liked that song. But it's funny because whenever I go to a doctor's appointment, usually that fucking song comes on. So, all right, there you go. 2003, Triple H defeated Kane in a title versus mask match to retain the World Heavyweight Championship. As a result, Kane was forced to unmask. And yes, I remember all the reactions at that time. You know, look, we knew what Kane looked like. I mean, we saw him wrestle as Unabomb. We have saw him as Dr. Isaac Yankum. I mean, it wasn't going to be much different about him. It's just, you know, when, when you saw, like, the half a hair and, you know, the, the black face paint a little bit, they tried to make him look evil. And at that time, I think people found it more humorous than anything. And remember the storyline where he was, you know, tagging with Rob Van Dam and, you know, he would chokeslam him. I mean, it was just, uh, it was an interesting time. But, uh, you know, now when Kane wrestles, he wrestles with the mask on. But uh, it was an interesting moment this week in 2003. That same night, Goldberg ended Rodney Mack's undefeated streak. And another segment that I, I think is always overlooked, you know, that Raw took place at Madison Square Garden. And Mick Foley, who was pretty much, re I, don't, I guess you could call it retired at the time. He had just written a book. He was going to be going on a worldwide book tour. And WWE decided to do an impromptu tribute to Mick Foley this night in 2003. Here's a couple of highlights from that tribute. Now, before you get all wound up and uptight, 
you know, I know you're fixing to go away on a, on a book tour to promote your new book, which I might add, I know is going to be highly successful because you're behind it and I think you're a genius. And by the way, I would like an autographed copy. But there is, uh, before you go on this book tour, there is something that I wanted you to have. No, 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 it ain't a stunner. Good guess, but it ain't a stunner. Guys, would you come out here, please? championship belt which you represented like no other human being on this earth so right now I'm having a hardcore legend ceremony for Mick Foley in my opinion the toughest summit I ever met so I want to present you with this how good I really was. <laughs> I used to... Now what? No chance! Successful what chance. in the world? How in the hell? How can even Mr. McMahon find out who the hell it is? It's Vince. Who the hell else would it be? Strutting out here like he owns the place. He does own the place. Yeah, he does own the place. <laughs> How can even Mr. McMahon interrupt this ceremony? He can interrupt anything he wants to! Oh, I know he can! That's his ring! This is his show! Is he on this building? That's the Bret Hart is? No, he doesn't. He can buy it if he wanted to. Yeah, I've got the money, but... Mr. McMahon doesn't keep his distance. Got no quarrel with you tonight, Austin! Listen, listen! I want to say something to Mick Foley! Last time, Mick Foley, the very last time I was in your presence, it was on my private plane. And it was there where you said, as far as you were concerned, you'd never set foot in a WWE ring again. Yet tonight, here you stand. Which, from a personal standpoint, wants me, it makes me want to take this trophy and bash you in the head with it. and turn you into a puddle of gelatin. A gelatin, a puddle of ooze. That's what I want to do to you, Mick Foley, from a personal standpoint. From a professional standpoint, that's something else. One businessman to another one. One businessman to another one. I want to say to you what Stone Cold is thinking. 
I want to say to you and everybody in this ring, everyone in this arena is thinking. What? I want to say to you, Mick Foley, what everyone all over the world is thinking. For all the wonderful, great moments you gave us all. I want to say the two words everybody's thinking here tonight. Thank you. I don't believe it. I don't believe this either. Well, Vince is a business man, and well, he probably made Vince a lot of money. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. Let's not, let's not push it too far. No, no, no. I've been wanting to do that for a long time, Vince. I, uh, I used to look out here at the TV during the 19 months I was away and I'd see some of the WWE wrestlers shed a tear during their great moments. I think, what a bunch of wimps out there crying during a WWE broadcast. But I'll be damned, Stone Cold, they didn't show that video and the hardcore legend had a little tear of his own trickling down his cheek because it is indeed an honor to be in this ring, in this building, Madison Square Garden. Right here in New York oh, City. Oh. You had to go for the cheap pop. The king of those. With so many great performers and Al Snow. Vince, it was 20 years ago, I sat somewhere out there in the third row and watched Jimmy Superfly Snuka <laughs> leap off the top of a steel cage. When that match was over, that's when I made up my mind that that's what I wanted to do. Wanted to try to give the fans the same type of thrills that the Superfly had given me. And uh, I'm going to go out on a limb right here and say that I think I did that. Now, kid, when you gave me a ring and I stepped into that ring, I kind of thought that at least some of the fans would remember who I was. I kind of hoped that some of the fans might even chant my name. hoping for but I wasn't prepared for how I felt when I opened up those doors and walked back into a WWE arena and I want to tell you that this has been a thrill for me uh oh he's tearing up I have had a wonderful couple weeks I have loved performing for all of you over the course of my 15 years I have loved being back home in the WWE. And now I know how Dorothy Gale from Kansas felt when she said, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Hell, Vince, with a couple of huge, glaring, cavernous ex exceptions, I've even loved working for you. And I'd like to think that when my time comes again, when a phone call comes my way, 
that I'll be welcomed back inside a WWE ring. It's one final thought. And that is, like Stone Cold said, I've got, I've got a book coming out. I'm very proud of it. I hope some of you will take a look at it. I think you'll like it. Now a book and club. I thought it'd be appropriate as I left to go on this book tour, if I tried to quote some famous poet, author, or philosopher. So uh, I came up with Frosty the Snowman. Oh my gosh. Who said, and I quote, I'll say goodbye but don't you cry. I'll be back again someday. Thank you very much. Oh, man. Well, click your heels together and hit the yellow brick road. What a legend. There'll be a, never be another man to lace his boots quite like Nick Foley in our lifetime. I still can't believe he hugged Bentley, man. A hardcore legend being honored tonight by Stone Cold Steve Austin and Nick Foley's peers. And let me tell you, folks, by God, it just could not have happened to a nicer guy. Mrs. Foley's baby boy has come home. Now, at the time, Vince McMahon is, you know, playing a big-time heel, what I didn't share was in the back, you had Mick Foley autographing a book for someone. I don't remember who it was. What I do remember is that Ric Flair and Randy Orton had walked to the back after their match. Mick Foley had complimented Ric Flair about the match, and Ric Flair's like, what the fuck are you talking about? They proceed to beat the shit out of Mick Foley, and just as Mick Foley would probably always want it you know, done that way, Randy Orton is beating him up, throws him down a flight of stairs, and Mick Foley is quote-unquote laid out at the bottom of the stairs. Vince McMahon shows up, and he's, you know, looking, saying he needs help. And, you know, in the spur of the moment, we just had that segment that paying tribute to Foley that, you know, maybe Vince is, has a little soft heart, but then he decides the help he needs is a janitor to get rid of the garbage, which was Mick Foley. 2004, got to share this little story. You'll probably get a kick out of it. It's a personal story that involved me, Bam Bam Bigelow, and a very shady promoter. Any regular listener knows my involvement for X, when XPW was here on the Northeast in Philadelphia. I used to do all the bus trips. I used to handle a lot of getting people to the shows, you know, publicity. Sometimes I would actually drive to Philadelphia with this guy Slash. And, he, you know, he, I, I call him a promoter. He wasn't a promoter for XBW. He did his own Lucha shit later on, which everything backfired in his face. He lost his shirt, which I'm still happy to this day. It, it's almost orgasmic to hear the failure that took place. It's one of the greatest feelings I've ever gotten doing hotlines or podcasts, and I'll, I'll tell that story in a moment. But, you know, at that time, you know, in 2004, XPW was done. But... In 2002, when I was pushing all the bus trips, and I have talked in the past, and there's nobody's disputed it, people have admitted it, over half the crowds that were in the ECW arena for those XPW shows were because of my bus trips. I used to sell out three, four, five bus trips at one point, getting people to go to Philly for XPW. And in one particular bus trip, this was the infamous night where they were going to have two events back-to-back, 
and they were fearing a major, major snowstorm, and they decided to cancel the second event. Well, check this out. In 2002, I'm in Philly. I'm ringside doing the timekeeping for XPW, and there's fears that they're going to have a major snowstorm the following day. So now I have a bus trip set up, and at that time it was either three or four buses already paid for, reserved, done. Fans were going to be, you know, showing up at the bus trip locations the following morning, Saturday morning, to go to XPW. So now I'm at at the XPW event Friday, and long story short, I'm asking this guy Slash, a few other people, look, is the show on for Saturday? If it's going to cancel, I have to get in touch with the bus companies. I have to somehow get in touch with the fans. I'm in Philly. I'm doing timekeeping. I'm sitting ringside live in an event. It's like 10 o'clock at night, the night before the bus trip. I need to know what the fuck is going on. So anyway, at intermission, I find out that they're canceling the next show the night, the day later, because they're fearing that the snowstorm is going to snow in a lot of the wrestlers, and the wrestlers are trying to find emergency ways to get out of Philly before the snowstorm. Even though the weather forecast said that the snow wouldn't hit until probably Sunday, or late, late, late Saturday night. So now, here I am in intermission. I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? There are fans that are going to be at, you know, the city. They're going to be in Queens waiting for buses. What do I do? So now what happens is, is that, and I got to give credit where credit is due. Jasmine St. Clair, who was doing 3PW at the time, they were doing an event on that Saturday. And what they did was they actually showed up and they told the the fans that were there, look, if you still want to go to a wrestling event in Pennsylvania, you could come to 3PW. And they all went. So I was able to cancel the bus trips. And I went on my hotline at the time. I had, you know, alerted people that the, the trip was canceled. I actually expressed frustration on my hotline that I don't understand why they canceled the event. It may not start snowing until the following Sunday. I understood the the logistics of it, of getting out. You know, some of the wrestlers lived in California. It's not that easy to get out of there. But they could have somehow, you know, worked out this card a little bit differently. Or they should have let people know the day before. If they were that convinced, because apparently they knew all along that Saturday show was canceling. And all I remember is... You know, having the website, posting the update on my website, I didn't have the phone numbers for every fan. But what I did was when I, I drove back to Queens that Friday night, I didn't stick around for Saturday. Yeah, of course, Saturday was, you know, they canceled the event, but I drove home in the middle of the night, went on my hotline, got all my papers, and tried to get in touch with all the fans one by one by one on the Saturday morning to tell them, look, trip is canceled, trip is canceled, trip is canceled. Me, out of my own pocket, I refunded every fan's money. I'm supposed to get this money back from XPW. So, long story short, this fucking shady piece of shit, Slash, who lived in Baldwin, Long Island, who worked for XPW, and I basically worked for him, He's telling me that, you know, no, Rob Black and XPW, they're going to give you the money back. They're going to give me so you, because, because I gave everybody's money back immediately. I'm straight up with everybody out there. I'm brutally honest, but I'm also straight up. And when they canceled that, I didn't even hesitate. I refunded every single person's money. 
even before I got the money from XPW, I could have put all this on XPW and said, look, you got to get in touch with XPW for the refund. But my relationship with the listeners here, hotline, going to the shows, is a very strong bond. And that's why I used to always have people going over and over and over again. So I lay out this money, and this guy Slash, it ends up that XPW gave him the money, and he pocketed it. He never gave me the fucking money. So I lost all that money. So not only did I lose the money, but two people that were on the bus that time were my nephews. At that time, they were under 10 years old. My uncle had passed away, tragically. So they were wrestling fans who were very young, and I had told Slash, look, you don't charge my nephews. They're 10 years old. They just lost their father. I want to get their mind off of wrestling. No, 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 no. I found out after he took money from them. So not only do I want to beat this motherfucker up, because of that, you know, I, I can't find him. His phone's disconnected. I showed up at his house. He's nowhere to be found. I'm convinced to this day that he fucking was locked in his house and looking through the window. I showed up there three times. And I put the word out that if anybody ever sees this motherfucker at an event, let me know. Well, this week in 2004, NWA Cyberspace is doing a show in Rahway, New Jersey. And I'm home, and I got to give Frank Goodman all the credit in the world. And people know, I've told this over the years. I mean, even when he was alive, you know, he told it. I became friendly with Bam Bam Bigelow. He asked me to sell the ECW ring that he had in his possession on eBay. And, you know, obviously you know the story about that. If you don't go on YouTube, you can hear that story. Bam Bam Bigelow wanted me to sell all of his vintage memorabilia on eBay because he needed money badly because his wife left him and took all his money. I became friendly with the guy. Not as strong of a friendship as the friendship he had with Mass Maniac, but I became friendly with him. Sure enough, Bam Bam Bigelow is at this event. He's not wrestling, but he's at the event. And I'd say maybe like 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night, I get a phone call from Mass Maniac saying to me that Bam Bam Bigelow just called him and told him and said, listen... Tell de Blasi his buddy Slash is at this event if he wants to come down there and beat the fuck out of him because Bam Bam Bigelow knew the story also. So now, basically, word gets out that this guy's at the event, and I don't know where I posted online, but I actually said, I'm getting dressed, I'm going to fucking Rahway, and I'm going to see if I can fucking get Slash. Somehow it got to a couple of fans in attendance, and they told Slash that I was going there to beat, beat the shit out of him, and he fucking disappeared. He ran out of there. And the guy was fucking MIA for the longest of time, you wouldn't believe. But anyway, where I got my revenge after all of this is obviously the night where Don Tony was born, where I broke his glasses and I uppercutted the cannolis up his nose. You know the story of how Don Tony, quote unquote, was born. But he tried to do lucha wrestling events here in New York after that. And you could do Google searches. You could see the hype that he put into these shows. One show drew, I think, 40 people. And he rented out Club Amazora. For anybody that's local here that knows that building, when Frank used to do those shows there, this guy lost tens of thousands of dollars. And the greatest feeling I've ever had doing hotlines, podcasts, yes, getting the emotional messages from all of you out there. I'm not talking about the real-life, raw emotion things that you've all gone through. I'm just talking about just, you know, business-wise. Greatest satisfaction I ever had was 
back in my hotline days, this guy did a Lucha event. He decided he was going to do it in Amazora. The word was out that if I showed up, I was going to get arrested. But I had fans upon fans upon fans who went on my XPW bus trips that were contacting me on my hotline saying, listen, I really want to go to this event, but because you were straight up, you gave me my money back and what that motherfucking slash did to you, I'm not going. And I had person after person after person telling me this. I thought some people were just saying it just because they want you know me to be like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. But that card didn't even draw 50. The guy lost so much goddamn money for it, and it's because he killed his reputation here in the Northeast. So it's just a little personal story. I thought you would get a kick out of it. brings back memories for me because, you know, thinking back this week in 2004, I get the phone call at home. I'm in my underwears, and Goodman's like, Bam Bam Bigelow's the show. He told, he told me to tell you, Slash is here if you want to beat the shit out of him. Can't say I didn't get a little revenge. So wrapping up 2004, well, 04 and 05, we're going to talk about JBL a little bit. First, let's get into 04. You know, last week I talked about how JBL was fired from CNBC because of him doing the goose step in Germany during a WWE house show. And at that time, I mean, over these weeks, I was really annoyed at WWE uh, for putting the heavyweight title on JBL. It felt like they were rewarding him for horrible behavior overseas in Germany. Now, as years gone by, I've realized and understood more that he was playing a character, and yes, he went a little bit over the top without a doubt. Um, other wrestlers have done it as well to try to generate extra heel heat. But when you look back at 2004, when he cut this promo on SmackDown, a lot of it was, as people call it, a shoot. And it is very, very powerful to look back on it. Arguably, it might be the greatest promo that JBL has ever cut in wrestling. Unfortunately, we get to 2005. I guess I can mention it now. We learned this week that Blue Meanie needed to get 12 stitches after you know being pummeled for real by JBL in the ring during ECW One Night Stand, which was just really, really fucked up. Um, you know, Blue Meanie took the high road at that time and it was probably the best thing that he ever did even though you know he probably had every right to sue but you know it was what it was it's kind of it is fucked up there's no other way to put it but let's get back to 2004 it was this week in history jbl cut this very powerful memorable promo Ladies and gentlemen, John Bradshaw Leafield. You saw what Bradshaw just tossed into the ring, that Texas bull rope, which will be the theme of the match at the Great American Bash. JBL, John Bradshaw Leafield is the number one contender, and he earned it, Cole. He got a victory. By hook or crook, he got a victory over Guerrero at Judgment Day. But he didn't win the championship. You're right, Bradshaw does not look to be in a good mood tonight. Usually that, that toothy grin. Well, well, in this case, come Great American Bash. He doesn't have to pink Guerrero, doesn't have to make him submit. Just got a bash move with that cowbell on that rope and driving the four corners, and he's the champ, the new champ. Most of you people are extremely happy that I just had one hell of a week. Not only do I get fired, from CNBC. But Eddie Guerrero wrecks my limousine with me in it.
And with Ronald Reagan, one of our greatest presidents ever, passing away last week, all the media wants to talk about is me. You people in our media in America are what is exactly wrong with America. Americans are what's wrong with America. You people want me to fail for one reason. Shut up, I'm talking. You people want me to fail because when I was in high school, I'm the one that threw you in a locker. I'm the one that took your girlfriend. I was the captain of the football team. I'm the one that got everything. And it hasn't changed one damn bit now that I'm 37 years old. I am richer than you people. I am better looking than you people. And what makes you maddest is I have a backbone. The whole world is against me right now. The media has vilified me. CNBC has fired me. And what makes you people the maddest is I will not beg for a damn thing. I will not crawl. I will not back up. You can knock me on my but I will be back. And that makes you people mad. Because despite everything, I will come back and I will be successful. It is what I have done my whole life. And that is why you people hate me. I was raised by a man who had a backbone. So do I. I came in this world alone. I will leave alone. I don't need a damn soul with me. Come hell, come high water. Take your best shot, America. John Bradshaw Layfield is right here. And I won't back up from anybody. And if you don't like it, you can go to hell. A year and a half ago, I was a guest of the United States Army in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Where were you? Where were you? Where was our media? You weren't there, were you? I am an American. The night before, a soldier got killed in a firefight. A soldier got killed in a firefight, and what did our media cover? The fact that a man died a hero defending our country? The fact that a man died preserving our freedom in a land he didn't want to be in thousands of miles away from his family? What are you booing, our American soldiers? Huh? That shows you what kind of American you are, you piece of garbage. American media covered one thing that week, and that was the fact that Sean Penn, Sean Penn was in Baghdad as a guest of Saddam Hussein's regime in support of Iraq, and they cast it in a positive light. That is the media that guides you like the mindless zombies that you are. Oh, I've been to Iraq now, but I went as a guest of the United States government in support of our troops, calling me anything but a great American is like calling Mother Teresa a prostitute.
I come back last week and find out that I am fired from CNBC. I left Fox News as a guy who appeared on there regularly to CNBC, a ratings that might as well be in the witness protection program to all kinds of dreams. And all of a sudden, after three weeks, they realize that I'm a wrestler. Oh my God, I've got a big mouth. Well, you're damn right I've got a big mouth. And there's nothing you nor CNBC can do about it. You see, I might as well take the Fifth Amendment because the First Amendment does not mean a damn thing in our society anymore. You see, everybody loves free speech until you use free speech. I wondered why you people hated me. Well, now I know because I expose you for what you are. I am strong. Therefore, you are exposed for the fact that you are weak. I am driven, and that exposes the fact that you are lazy, complacent, and take jobs you do not like because you don't have the guts to speak up. I have a backbone, and that makes you mad. People like me, people like me, are the ones that founded America. Put that foreign flag down, son, you're in America. Our founding fathers are rolling over in their grave right now at the pathetic example of Americans that you people have become. I am a window, a mirror that makes you look into your own souls and you don't like what you see. You hate me because I reveal what you are. Well, at the Great American Bash, I'm going to go one step further. I am going to become WWE Champion for one reason, and that is to shove it down your throats. Eddie Guerrero, Eddie Guerrero, this is past personal. Do you even know what a bull rope match is? There is a reason. They don't do bull rope matches anymore. Blood is going to flow like a river. This will make Judgment Day look like a cartoon. Eddie Guerrero, you have come to represent everything I hate about America. Eddie Guerrero, you personify what I abhor. These people like Eddie Guerrero because Eddie Guerrero asks nothing of them. I condemn, I condemn, listen to me, I condemn you people for your lazy and pathetic lives. You are underachievers and I say you are wrong and you hate me because of it. Well, Eddie, if I have to destroy myself to destroy you, then by God in heaven, by everything holy, that is what I will do. Because I don't care if it's you people, I don't care if it's CNBC, I don't care if it's our liberal media, and I damn sure don't care if it's you, Eddie Guerrero. Nobody, nobody can stop me from becoming WWE Champion and taking my date with destiny.
we shoot ahead again to 2005. Samoa Joe makes his TNA debut. He debuts at TNA Slammiversary and defeats Sanjay Dutt. Main event from that night, Raven winning the NWA World Heavyweight title in a King in a Mountain match against Sean Waltman, Monty Brown, AJ Styles, and Abyss. That same week on Monday Night Raw, another wedding gone horribly wrong. How many of you remember this? And now, and now that we've seen their love represented in a visual form, Edge and Lita wanted to say and, and express their love in a spoken word. And as I understand, there's a very large, rather unusual looking man who insisted on coming down here uh -oh. and saying something. Oh, no. Snitsky were coming out. Edge and Lita, as a gift to you on your special day, I wrote a special passage and I entitle it, It's Not My Fault. <laughs> it's not my fault you fell in love. It's not my fault, it came from above. It's not my fault, Edge and Lita chose this direction. It's not my fault, Kane can't get an erection. It's not my fault, the things that love can do to us. <laughs> Just like it's not my fault, you had a dead baby in your uterus. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> that was very nice. But it's now time for Edge and Lita to proclaim their love and commitment to each other. Do you have the rings? Very good. And I understand that you have written your own vows. Then Edge place the ring on Lita's finger and proceed with your vows. Lita, everyone knows me as money in the bank. And now you also know me as money in the, uh, money in the sack. <laughs> and, and I know you've had some rough times because of a bald, sweaty, seven-foot monster. But, but tonight when the Padre says, do you take this man? 
you'll be marrying a man and not a monster. Not a seven-foot, sweaty, sexually incompetent freak. Okay, okay, Lita. Please place the ring on Edge's finger and proceed with your vows. Lena, please. What's the matter with these people, JR? Edge, I may have been unlucky in marriage, but I've never been unlucky in love because I never loved Kane. And I now know, after falling in love with you, that I have never been in love with any man. She's choking up, I don't blame her. I don't, I don't care what these people say, and it might hurt. But if falling in love with you makes me a slut, Well, then I'm proud. I am proud to be the slut of the century. Oh my. I told you this is going to be different. Oh Some beautiful vows. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. If there's anybody here that feels these two should not be joined in holy matrimony, then let them speak now or forever hold your peace. Very well then, very well then. Sorry, I, I just couldn't resist. Oh, man. Not funny. Padre, I'm, I'm sorry, Padre. I'm sorry. I'll explain it all later at the reception, okay? <laughs> well, then, if nobody actually objects, then by the power vested in me, by God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is right! It's King! 
thinking right now. Why is he smiling? Well, I don't think smiling. that's a smile. Wait a minute! No! Wait a minute! No, Mark! No! 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 That's the priest! Not a two-stone! No! Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Canis two-stone, tall-driven, the priest! back at WWE weddings. I know a lot of you out there would say, oh, the Stephanie nip slip. No, my favorite moment, I think, ever was the disguise that they put on Eric Bischoff when he was the priest. Fucking pop for that. Just excellent work and a great performance by Eric Bischoff as well, without a doubt. Now we go to 2006. And I'm not going to get into a full-blown recap because there are loads of them online still. WWE, keep in mind that last week was the debut of their version of ECW on sci-fi. And as much as I loved seeing my good friend who's no longer with us, Timmy Arson, as a zombie, the overall product was less to be desired. And it was only a week later that WWE thought that they can pull off a good house show for ECW in Philly. So us, DOI, a lot of us, we decided we were going to make the trek and go. So, WWE has their ECW event in Philly. Paul Heyman was there. 
you know, uh, CM Punk, Tommy Dreamer, Rob Van Dam, Kurt Angle, Sandman, Sabu. You had a good card there. But there were a lot of moments that fans did not like. And, you know, from chanting, fuck you, Vince, chanting, this show sucks, Big Show just got shitted out of the building like you wouldn't believe. In fact, if you actually go and look at recaps online, because I was doing my hotline at that time and doing a website, there are a couple of recaps that actually give me credit because a couple of weeks before, I said that I fear that WWE is going to water this down to the point that the fans are going to shit on this show when even if Paul Heyman cuts a promo. You know, at that time, Paul Heyman, when in the original ECW, could cut a promo for any given time, for any given moment, and the fans would love it because everybody respected him. But just, just the card was not that good. Some of the matches were fine. Some of them were very, very short. There were a lot of kids there, I remember. You know, you saw a lot of regular ECW fans that showed up, but there were a lot of kids, a lot of women. They had Justin Roberts doing the announcing. Fans wanted Horshack. They tried to do the extreme bikini contest, you know, which Francine did win. I think a lot of people forget that Francine was in WWE for a cup of coffee, but they had Francine, Kelly Kelly, Trinity. They tried to have Mike Knox covering up Kelly. A lot of fans did not like it. Because remember, you go to ECW One Night Stand 2005, you know, what you, how everything felt a year later. You know, at that time, did we think CM Punk would be this larger-than-life aura, you know, this, this, you know, this cult hero that you have now? No. Everybody knew he had major talent. Kurt Angle, I mean, speaks for himself. There was a lot of decent talent on that card, but... People expected the aura, the vibe of the old ECW, and it really did not have it all that much that night. So, But again, if you really want to go back and uh, just look at some uh, of the recaps, people were very, very brutal and vicious to that event to the point where, you know, the, WWE was getting so much criticism that Joey Styles even was doing a column at that time and Joey Styles was basically, you know, telling everyone, look, as negative as the first week of ECW felt on sci-fi, the second week made up for it. He was putting over Sabu and others. But he basically said to the haters and the cynics that don't like what they're seeing, <clears throat> email him at joeystyles at kissmyass.com. He basically told, you know, the haters, you know, lighten up a little bit. So there you go. 2007, double murder. Suicide, Chris Benoit and his family. There's no reason, me whatsoever, to give you recaps and what happened and this and that. I have read through days of uh, amounts of content over the years. You know, reading the original text messages, reading police reports, listening to interviews and just everything that went down. I mean, it's surreal. You know, I continue to do a podcast every Monday night live at 11.15 p.m. Eastern Standard. Been doing it since 2003. Before that, did hotlines from 1997 on. So I know there's a lot of people out there that do podcasts and do blogs or whatever they do, fucking 
Snapchats or whatever right after Raw on Monday nights. And I understand it. You're in the wrestling frame of mind. You want to talk immediately after. Fine. You know, some people I know that are friendly with our show, I find a little disrespectful that you're asking me to plug your show and then your show is airing live the same time as us. You know, I, I mean, let's be honest. Maybe someone out there could correct me on this, but is my podcast the longest reigning podcast online? I don't know. For wrestling-wise, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I go back to 2002, 2003 doing this shit online. You know, more on a regular basis in 04 and 05, but still, I'm always up there on Monday night. So when we found out about the, uh, the Benoit family being murdered, we were going live at 11.15 p.m., no matter what. So our show was scheduled anyway. And WWE did a tribute on Monday Night Raw. I don't need to recap that. And at that time, we all thought that somebody murdered the Benoit family, an outside person. So we start the show at 11.15 p.m. And we're paying tribute to Chris Benoit. And we're having discussions. Why did this happen? How could it have happened? Blah, 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 blah. And shortly through the podcast, you know, as we're doing the show, and keep in mind, not only do you keep getting this real strong chill up your spine of this murder, you know, of this family, but as we're doing the episodes, me and Joey924 are on our computers in the background, trying to get more information without interrupting the show, without losing our train of thought. And we're looking and looking and looking, and sure enough, as we're doing this, we're learning that Chris Benoit was the murderer. So by the end of the broadcast, we're, the beginning of the broadcast, we're tributing him. By the end of the broadcast, in real time, we're shitting on him. And it was just really, really fucked up. WWE deserves no criticism for doing a tribute show that night. They did not know that he, Chris Benoit, murdered his family. But as soon as they realized that that happened, the next day on ECW, Vince McMahon, right at the beginning of the broadcast, 45 seconds long, said this to the televised audience. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Last night on Monday Night Raw, the WWE presented a special tribute show, recognizing the career of Chris Benoit. However, now some 26 hours later, the facts of this horrific tragedy are now apparent. Therefore, other than my comments, there will be no mention of Mr. Benoit's name tonight. On the contrary, tonight's show will be dedicated to everyone who has been affected by this terrible incident. This evening marks the first step of the healing process. Tonight, WWE performers will do what they do better than anyone else in the world. Entertain you. So, look, there's, we'll never know the reason why. I have always said, and if you remember my old promo, you know, people, the the Rob Feinstein, how could you rip on Rob, Rob Feinstein? He was the, you got Chris Benoit tribute to post on your blog. You remember that promo? I've always felt that way, all right? Chris Benoit was an awesome wrestler, all right? But you don't get 
cootie points because you were a great family man and a father up until the point you killed your family. Just because you were a great wrestler and you entertained me for years upon years upon years, you know, I don't try to find a reason to justify me being a fan of his work. I could never forgive the man. I could never watch his stuff comfortably. And, you know, it blows me away when people make the excuses. Well, he had the brain of an 80-year-old man. Well, you know what? I don't know too many 80-year-olds that commit murder like that. Oh, he didn't know what he was doing. He was on TV wrestling capacity. I mean, he, you know, it's just stop making excuses. We're not physicians. We're not psychologists. We don't know what was in his brain. All right, we don't know what led up to it. We don't know. I mean, we, people could speculate. You have every right to share an opinion. But when I see people telling me it as if it's fact, well, he had the brain. He was going to die in three months anyway. And No, you don't know shit. I understand the family doing that because the family does not want to accept that their family member killed a child and a spouse. I totally understand it. I do not have any issues with any family member that's trying to find some type of logical explanation as to why things would happen. Things happened. Imagine living the rest of your life knowing that you know a loved one murdered their family. You know, you, I can only imagine what that could feel like. But as far as fans doing that, you, you'll never, ever get any acknowledgement from me. So I'll leave it at that. But I have listened to hundreds of hours of interviews over the years, read countless articles. And I wanted to share some audio that maybe you may not have heard in its entirety before. I found an interview that Vince McMahon did right after the murders. And it's an interview that I honestly think a, almost everybody out there has never heard before. And yes, there were a lot of questions unanswered at that time, but the interview runs 10 minutes. I was fascinated how long it went, but I thought you would find it very, very interesting. And then after that, I want to get into New Jack's views of the Benoit double murder suicide. Because like I said, every wrestler alive and deceased, now deceased have talked about this tragedy. So I tried to find something a little bit different that you may not have heard before. And what New Jack said I thought was so raw, so real, and so powerful. But first, here is Vince McMahon interviewed immediately after the Benoit murders. And now to the murder-suicide involving pro wrestler Chris Benoit. Speculation is running wild. Did steroids play a role, or is there another explanation? We have an exclusive interview with WWE chairman Vince McMahon in just a moment. But first, an update on the story from NBC's Mike Betcher. Chris Benoit's home sits empty. Police and the curious are gone, but the mystery remains. The greatest of all time. Why did the famous professional wrestler methodically, over the course of a weekend, strangle his wife, suffocate his seven-year-old son, then hang himself? Anabolic steroids are one focus of the investigation, a controversial muscle-building substance found at the murder scene. There were a lot of prescription medication. Depression, paranoia, and violent outbursts known as roid rage are linked with steroid use. It's going to make you a little more aggressive. Lex Luger, a former wrestling colleague of Benoit who says alcohol and steroids nearly destroyed his own life, suspects a link. 
obviously they're his home. <laughs> Let's face it, there's a pretty good um, chance he was on them. In 2003, Nancy Benoit filed for divorce and requested court-ordered protection from her husband, Chris. She later withdrew the divorce petition, but court records indicate she was scared by her husband's behavior. Nancy, at that time, felt that she wanted a divorce from Chris, also felt, apparently, from the filing of the temporary protective order that she was in some sort of a danger from him. Benoit going to the top rope. He His the friends say Chris Benoit was a gentle, strong man who knew the dangers of steroid use. His fellow wrestler and close friend Eddie Guerrero died in 2005 from heart failure linked to steroid use. In 2003, Kurt Hennig, known on the wrestling circuit as Mr. Perfect, died from a drug overdose. Hennig's father blamed steroids and painkillers for his son's death. World Wrestling Entertainment, Benoit's employer, says it's wrong to speculate that steroid use was responsible for this tragedy. The WWE says it tested Benoit for steroid use in April and the results were negative. Now, police must wait weeks for toxicology reports to determine if steroids were in the blood of the man known as the Canadian Crippler. Mike Betcher, NBC News, Atlanta. And WWE Chairman Vince McMahon is here for an exclusive interview. Good morning to you, Mr. McMahon. It's my understanding that it was your organization, WWE, that contacted the authorities on Monday and said, you need to get to Chris Benoit's home. There's something that's not right. Can you take me through what happened? Well, he was scheduled for a live event in Beaumont, Texas, and it was very much unlike Chris not to make live events. And that was on Saturday, correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, and from there, uh, our office contacted uh, Chris to try and rearrange flights and things of that nature so that he would come in on Sunday for the pay-per-view and actually late that Saturday night uh, into the pay-per-view in Texas. And uh, that was the last we heard of him. The flight was changed, and obviously we didn't, when he didn't show up on Sunday, we knew that there was something drastically wrong because his M.O. was definitely to make all of his engagements. He was a consummate professional from a business standpoint. Uh, so we knew something was, was really wrong. His friends could not contact him. He was not answering the phone. So that's why we sent the authorities over to investigate. But he apparently was contacting friends through text messaging. There were two text messages uh, to uh, two of his friends uh, early, early Sunday morning at like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, they were very strange, uh, hence another reason to contact the authorities. But uh, it was things of like uh, the... Side doors open, things of that nature, and the dogs are corralled in the pool. Uh, Very strange. Were you the one who personally contacted the police? What was your involvement? No, my involvement was overseeing and just wondering what was going on. Let's get to the bottom of it. Well, when police got to the home, they found Chris Benoit's body, his wife's body, and his child's body. They also found steroids in the home. And when asked by reporters if the steroids could have played any part in the murder-suicide, the DA, Scott Ballard, said, quote, we don't know yet. This is one of the things that we'll be looking at. And yet, almost immediately after, the WWE comes out with a statement saying steroids, quote, were not and could not be related to the cause of death. How could you possibly know that? The report, the toxicology reports are out. They're not going to come back for several weeks. So how can you so definitively say steroids played no part? Well, we didn't say that. In essence, what we're... That's a quote. Well, I understand it. And our reaction, by the way, was to reacting to the hysteria of the media 
um, which quite naturally they want to get to the bottom of this as we do. But Mr. McMahon, you know, the quote is we're this? not and could steroids were not and could not be related to the cause of death. That's very specific. It's very specific, but it was relating to the word rage because of the steroid rage uh, that everyone was using. And obviously this is not an act of rage. It's an act of deliberation when you do something like this over three days. It's not an act of rage, be it steroid rage or roid rage, whatever it's called, or any other rage. That's what we're referring to. There's no way, quite frankly, that we and or the media, it's all speculation until the toxicology reports come back. It's all speculation. But because it's all speculation, I'm guessing, why were you so uh, clear in saying you did not believe that steroids played a part? Steroids are found in the house again. Right. He has a history of violence by his own wife's account. And steroid use can also cause depression and paranoia. And that can also lead people to do crazy things. It doesn't sure. have to be rage alone. Right. I agree with that. Uh, there were a number of uh, prescription medications as well found in the house and whether or not they had anything to do with this behavior. Who knows? And whether or not there were other aspects uh, involved in his life that had something to do with this behavior. Hopefully we can find out in some way. This has been so devastating as a, as a father and a grandfather and a father figure to all those associated with uh, our brand. This is not what we're about. What we're about is putting smiles on people's faces. This is the opposite of what we do. We're entertainers. We entertain people all over the world, and we put smiles on faces. That's our job description, not something like this to be tainted and smeared with this. Um, it's no different than if a postal worker. You still use the post office, but obviously there's been problems there, too. There are problems everywhere. There was no indication whatsoever that this man could possibly turn into this monster and do what he did. And again, we want to know the answers just like everyone else. Steroids may or may not had something to do with this. Other prescription drugs, other pressures in, in terms of his, uh, his son uh, and, and his wife. I, I don't know, and some of this perhaps we'll never know. But hopefully we can put it to bed as best we possibly can and determine once we have real evidence in terms of the uh, toxicology report. But there's long been a history of suspected steroid use when it comes to pro wrestlers. How do you police these wrestlers? Well, the way we do it now, back in uh, February of last year, we instituted a wellness policy that only, not only polices steroids, but prescription drugs, or I should say the abuse of prescription drugs. Is that just essentially blood tests that you administer? Or? No, it's urine tests, blood tests, things mm -hmm. of that nature to determine all these factors, as well as uh, we instituted as well a cardiovascular aspect. Uh, in terms of heart disease or heart failure. So it's a very comprehensive uh, test. It was uh, put into place back in February. And uh, the last test that Chris Benoit uh, uh, took of a random nature was in April, which he was totally negative. That doesn't mean that he wasn't taking prescription medication and perhaps even steroids uh, when this happened. We don't know whether or not that had an adverse effect on, on his behavior is going to be determined by people far more important than I am. And you talk about your business being tainted. At the same time, it seems like early death is almost an occupational hazard when it comes to pro wrestling. Sixty wrestlers under the age of 65 have died since 1985, some because of steroid use or suspected steroid use. You have wrestlers being interviewed who talk about being addicted to painkillers and alcohol. You make tons of money off these people. What is your responsibility to them, and not just to them, but to their families? It's not just Chris Benoit who's dead. No. It's a, his wife, and it's a seven-year-old child. No question about that. We've had five individuals uh, during the course of, since we've been in business, who passed away that were under contract to us. I can't speak to all the rest of these individuals you're making reference to, uh, and don't even know if that's true, nor do you. But aside from that, aside from that, 
We've had five it's, under it's our It's disingenuous to say that you don't believe that there is suspected uh, steroid use within the wrestling community. No, I didn't. Did and you hear me say that, well, What are you saying then, sir? I didn't say that. What I'm saying is that of these individuals and this number you're throwing out, I can only speak to five individuals who have passed away who were under contract to us. One was Chris Benoit by suicide. Another was an accident with Owen Hart. And three of heart failure. I can only speak to those five. If it turns out, Mr. McMahon, that, that uh, Chris... Uh, there were steroids right. in his system at the time that this happened. What impact do you believe that will have on not just pro wrestling, but uh, on, on you and your reputation as well? Well, again, I can only speak to uh, our wellness program and how effective that is. Uh, and if you could interview our performers they would, and athletes, they would certainly tell you how effective that the program really is. So I think all we can do is do the very best we can as anyone else and establish this wellness program, which we have, that hopefully will ensure as best as possible the health and physical and mental well-being of our performers. But will it change at all your, your policing of, of these performers, if, if it's determined that indeed there were steroids in his system? Given the magnitude here, again, right. not just Chris is dead, his wife right. is dead, his child is dead. Look, this is an horrific tragedy. Uh, it, it happened in, in pro wrestling. I think there's a, a rush to judgment here you know, as to what caused this, there's this, almost a hysteria around this. And you can point... Unjustified, you think? I, I don't know whether it was justified or not, Meredith. And you know what? We really won't know until we get the toxicology reports back. And, and once you get those back, those are real facts. There are other things. We're not trying to hide from the fact that we are who we are or that Benoit was a part of our organization. Unfortunately, he was. There was no way of telling that this man was a monster. I, no way of knowing that whatsoever. He was a mild-mannered individual. And in any way does pro wrestling contribute to the creation of monsters? Absolutely not. You know, everyone that's in this organization, to my knowledge, is well-adjusted, uh, family people. No, they go to work like everybody else, except their definition of what their job is, is to put a smile on somebody's face. They're performers, and they do their jobs very, very well. And it's important that our organization continue to do that for the whole world of our fans is, is to move on for this as best we possibly can, notwithstanding a devastating tragedy we all are feeling, and to try and get back to work and try and do our jobs. Mr. McMahon, we greatly appreciate you being with us I appreciate the morning. opportunity. Thank, Thank you, you, Meredith. so much. Okay. I would have had some bitches in my day that I wanted to choke the fucking shit out of. And eventually, I ended up leaving the motherfuckers to keep from being on some bullshit like that. Okay. You yeah, we she, don't, we don't know. know. We don't, don't know. Y'all know. We don't know. I ain't got nothing but respect for you. Let me tell you something. We don't know what button she, button she pushed. Nancy was a goddamn friend of mine. All right. She was a friend of mine. And I worked with her and Chris at the same time. She was more of a friend of mine than that motherfucker was. Um, and I don't give a fuck what she did. I don't give a fuck what she said, she didn't just what he did to her didn't justify. I don't give a fuck what it was. If she was offering us some SM shit, trust me, it didn't just start that motherfucking night and it ended that motherfucking night. That motherfucking Chris was offering to some mental shit all by himself. Fuck steroids because somebody in this room done done steroids before. Oh, I did not, not, not me. And not just me. And you know what? I 
ain't been convicted of choking no hoe and killing her and killing a fucking kid. No, the kid didn't deserve to get killed and she didn't deserve to get killed either because first of all, you look at him. If the bitch mouth is that big and you can't take it, then bitch, go and get the fuck on. If you got to smack the bitch upside the head, smack the bitch upside the head and go and get the fuck on. But it took a motherfucking straight 100% uncut fucking Coward to do what that motherfucking did. And his motherfuckers just keep coming out to this day talking about what kind of a guy he was. He was a good guy. My suck my dick. When you choke a kid life out his motherfucking body and this kid got your posters up on his wall and then got your action figures up in your belt and then your wife is dependent on you to take care of him and provide for him even though she might have a big ass motherfucking mouth. It ain't a motherfucking And then his daddy comes on TV and tries to justify by saying, oh, he did the ECW and that wasn't nothing but garbage wrestling because he got hit upside the head. I'll show you 10 tapes of Chris get hit upside the head. I'll show you 10 tapes of Chris putting his motherfucking hand in the way and his hand taking a shot. That motherfucker didn't never get no fucking chair shot to his fucking head crack. God damn it. He ain't never get hurt to that motherfucking level. I cracked my motherfucking skull and had shit coming out my nose, my ears, and my fucking mouth. Didn't know who I was for goddamn four or five months and it ain't no none of my kids are still living to this motherfucking day. So you know what? The day that he killed both of them, all the goddamn credits to him good goes out the motherfucking window. Chris Benoit, I hope your motherfucking ass, if that is a heaven or a hell, I hope you go to hell and catch the fuck on fire for eternity, motherfucker, because it ain't a motherfucking thing, and for all the motherfuckers trying to cover up for you and justify for you, fuck you, and fuck them too, and for motherfuckers with Vince, like Vince, that done trying to make excuses for you, fuck that motherfucker too, I'm sorry, I done seen the shit as a kid growing up with my mom and my fucking daddy, and fuck that bullshit, I don't give a fuck, I don't give a fuck. That Nancy did not deserve to get the light choked out of her because you was on some old psychotic shit. I don't give a fuck what nobody say. And for all you hand-picked motherfuckers that Vince put on them fucking talk shows and goddamn put Benoit over, I hope your kid's born fucking retarded because the shit didn't make no sense. From John Cena on down to everybody else talking about he was a good guy. From fucking uh, the Million Dollar Man dude talking about he was a good guy. Motherfucker, when you killed your fucking son, seven-year-old son, and when you choke the life out your fucking wife, it ain't a motherfucking thing good shit that came out nobody's mouth about your punk ass, and I hope the maggots eat your motherfucking ass slow, you cocksucking motherfucker, and just like everybody else knew, this shit that Vince did, you still got away with it, because it was a big thing in the news at one time, and all of a sudden, it died down, and it's WWE back to fucking normal. And it's the same thing. You got away again with fucking murder. And Vince McMahon, you and the motherfuckers that work with you, all of you got blood on your hands because all of you motherfuckers is crooked and you just keep getting away with fucking murder. You had that cocksucker Brian something another from figure four, something another, whatever that bullshit was. He, Brian Alvarez, come on, talking about... 
When Cronus died, talking about, oh, it was drugs and ECW, and they ran rapid, and they was at ringside, and it's the other, you're a goddamn lie, because, bitch, I worked for ECW from 2000, got, I mean, from, from 90 motherfucking 495 to 2000, and the only motherfucker died when I was there was motherfucking Louis Pagoli, the only one, but you look at the motherfuckers don't work for fucking Vince, and don't fucking die, you goddamn cocksucker, you're averaging three a goddamn year. So just goddamn go do the motherfucking math. And then you pretend that you fire all the motherfuckers that's on steroids. You didn't fire no fucking body. You take a piss test, anybody can piss in a motherfucking cup and put somebody else's name on it. That ain't a motherfucking test. That ain't a drug test. That's bullshit. You got people working in your fucking office that their job is is to do office work and stay fucking clean. So Tess can goddamn piss goddamn clean. And trust me, when you gave Tess his name, you didn't get that motherfucker's name called Tess because he made good grades in fucking high school, motherfucker. He was a goddamn steroid freak, and you fucking know it. Your ass done got away with murder, and you're going to have to answer to some fucking body somewhere one motherfucking day. You're going to have to. And I don't give a fuck what none of y'all say, but you look at your fucking track record, and you stand there, you pretend like you fired by it. You didn't fire nobody. You paid off some contracts. You sent some people home early. You paid their contract up. And you was like, instead of you, I'm not going to renew your shit any fucking way. So here you go. I need to let some of y'all fucking go. Here you go. Oh, by the way, y'all get sent home with pay. Bitch, I would not play the game like that. And for all you motherfuckers that still play it and still up on the fence with a nut resting on your forehead, you motherfuckers ought to tuck your dick between your legs and duct tape it and run around the house and rub peanut butter on you because you ain't a fucking man. You a fucking bunch of goddamn cowards. And Brian Pillman, I'm sorry, Brian, with Chris, Chris Benoit, you was a fucking coward. You was a straight fucking coward. You oh, choked man. your fucking wife till she fucking the, the life left the body. You choked your son till the life left his body. And then you took a fucking cable, put it around your neck, and had the nerve to put some padding in between it just in case the bitch didn't go right. I mean, fuck you. We're going to wrap this up shortly. 2008, WWE this week on Raw had their draft lottery. And unfortunately, WWE decided not to tell some of their employees that they were going to be switching brands. Two in particular were Michael Cole and Jim Ross. And Jim Ross, who was very, very upset about it, contemplated quitting WWE right at that moment and was up all night long speaking to his wife about it and decided what's best for business, for the fans, for the product, for the wrestlers, was to show up on SmackDown and he would remain on SmackDown until October of 2009 when he unfortunately had another uh, bout with Bell's palsy. But Jim Ross at that time wrote, wrote a blog, very, very outspoken, saying he did not know. And he looks back and he remembers seeing a few people with some smirks on their face and poker faces through the day. And uh, I, I'm sure he was offended. I don't blame him. All those years you put in for that product to not be told in advance you're moving to the other brand. Maybe WWE was really afraid that he would have just walked out and not commentated on Raw. So there you go. Wrapping up 2008 as well. In Barcelona, Spain, Ultimate Warrior. First match since his retirement in 1999. Returns to the ring. Wrestles and defeats Orlando Jordan. Wins the new Wrestling Evolution World Heavyweight title and then retires the belt. Or well, he retires as champion. Um, I wanted to play this match. The problem is it's in a different language. It's in Spanish. And not only that, if you've never seen this match, you think of the Ultimate Warrior. 
Sure, his comments were controversial in the mid-2000s. I don't know how much of that, you know, trickled into Spain. Pay attention to the crowd reaction. When he comes out during the match, after the match, they did not deserve Ultimate Warrior versus Orlando Jordan that night. They deserved shit. Look at that fucking crowd. Just, just look. I'm not exaggerating it. No reaction at all. Said, but they paid him a boatload of money to wrestle. He didn't do bad. A lot of people took notice that, you know, sweating profusely, out of breath, this and that. Look, you know, the guy was getting up there in age as it is, and he didn't wrestle, you know, in a regular match for nine years. But still, I mean, that match had so much hype. And I, I don't know what that promoter was thinking. Look at that crowd. That's the one thing I always remember from that match. 2009, WWE releases Candice Michelle and Sim Snuka. And what I will always remember about this release is Candice Michelle's blog, her thank you, that she posted on WWE.com immediately after. And I'll, I'll explain why I always remember it. She writes on, on WWE.com the following. Dear WWE Universe, today's the first day of my next journey. I'm filled with excitement and gratitude that I want to express. First and foremost, I want to say thank you to the McMahon family. Thank you, Vince, Linda, and Stephanie. I've had an amazing five years wrestling for you guys. You have taught me and given me so many incredible memories. My time in the WWE was so heartfelt and an incredible journey that I'll never forget. I want to thank the people who have helped me to be successful. Thank you, Johnny Laurinaitis, Mark Carano, and the rest of Talent Relations. You guys are awesome and what you do, and I appreciate everything you've done for me. Thanks to the amazing agents, Arn, Dean, Ricky, Mike, Fit, Barry, Steve, and Billy. You guys are incredible at what you do, and it was so exciting for me to get the opportunity to learn from the best. Speaking of the best, John Cena was a champ in every sense of the word, inside and outside the ring. Thank you, John, for your friendship, conversations, and encouragement in the business. I've had so many fun-filled memories on the road that I'll never forget. Thanks to Victoria, Tori, Carlito, Tommy, and Mickey. You guys will be my buddies for life, and I'll never forget you. Thank you for the amazing superstars and divas. You guys are simply the best at what you do. You have contributed so much in me becoming a wrestler. Thanks to Triple H, Big Show, Melina, Mickey, John Cena, Tommy Dreamer, Shawn Michaels, and everyone else who's helped me in the ring. Thanks to the awesome crew and the people behind the scenes. Without them, the show wouldn't even begin. They're so incredible and full of talent. My time in the WWE was a true blessing. I'm excited that I was the first WWE Diva Search contestant to become WWE Women's Champion. I know I have paved the way for women like me, and I'm so proud of them. Now, get, go get them, ladies. You are talented and beautiful. A special dedication to all the amazing and wonderful fans who have supported me, made sites for me, who are always positive and mostly just showed you love. I really appreciate you. I hope to see you in my next journey. I feel it coming fast. You can see my new website in less than one and a half months at CandiceMichelle.com. Catch up with my updates, also on Twitter. I have loved that journey. I'm ready to grow into this next chapter. Stay tuned. Much more to come. Yours truly, Candice Michelle. WWE took that down within about an hour because, uh, you know, it's you take it however you want. But you leave probably not the 
best place to put it on WWE's website, especially when you name drop in all of the people behind the scenes and others. Just my opinion on it, but I figured I'd share it. Last week, we played that little clip of Donald Trump buying Monday Night Raw. The following week, it was going to be the commercial-free edition. Well, Matarazzi's on the stock market took it literally that he bought Raw. Stock price goes down a little bit. WWE's in Little Hot Waters Securities and Exchange Commission. They think that it's influencing the stock even since Donald Trump really didn't buy Raw. So a week later, Donald Trump sells back Monday Night Road events. Should have been handled differently, everyone. Should have been handled differently. You know, WWE had a very hard time separating Vince McMahon and Mr. McMahon. You know, we all knew that whenever you saw Mr. McMahon, it was the character. But whenever you saw Vince McMahon, it was usually real. And if you notice with the Benoit clip that I played, where he spoke right before ECW, did not say Mr. McMahon. It said Vince McMahon. So, 2009 as well on SmackDown, they had a funny little segment where Rey Mysterio was sitting in the crowd with two other people dressed as Rey Mysterio. If you look back on it, you'll laugh. Just how, like, not <laughs> the other ones looked at Rey Mysterio. It looked like they were about 50 pounds, 80 pounds in weight. Because this was the storyline where Rey Mysterio was still feuding with uh, Chris Jericho a little bit. Also in 2009, TNA filmed their pilot episode of Spin Cycle, um, hosted by Jeremy Borash. And the same week, Slammiversary, Kurt Angle won the TNA Heavyweight Championship in a King of the Mountain match versus Jeff Jarrett, AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, and Mick Foley. This was the night where Samoa Joe turned and helped Kurt Angle win. And it was just, I don't know. Was, I never liked the you know just the way tna sometimes when you have a good recipe even though you may not have created the recipe you leave it alone but you know trying to twist things around well maybe i'll substitute this for this and maybe we'll put the title up we'll hang it up instead of taking it down and you know if you listen to don west's commentary on why it made sense that samoa joe what he did early on it just makes no sense at all and then you add in the fact that they were doing a main event mafia storyline at this time. <laughs> Not good. Not good. 2010, to try to help put over the Nexus more as a conglomerate, you know, a legitimate threat, they uh, attacked Vince McMahon on Raw. 2011, at the Capital Punishment pay-per-view, I originally was going to play it, and I was like, you know, it's so bad, I'm not even going to waste my time. You had a fake Barack Obama on Capital Punishment who ends up doing a Barack Rooney. You know, it just, come on. And it has nothing to do with Barack Obama being president at the time. It was just, you look back on it and you just ask yourself, what was the purpose of that segment? It was just dumb. It was hokey. Barack Rooney, the crowd did not like it. It just, I don't, it just fell flat. Beyond flat. 2011, Martha Hart sues WWE once again. She is not happy at all that Owen Hart is being showed his likeness on WWE videos. Bret Hart, very, very incensed at Martha Hart's lawsuit, writes some public views on it, and I'll share with you now since it's pretty quick. Bret Hart, in response to Martha's lawsuit, says, and I quote, I feel it's ridiculous for anyone to think 
that they're serving the best interests of Owen's memory or his children to pretend he wasn't a wrestler. Not only was he a wrestler, he was a great one and proud of it. I personally believe Martha Hart has done nothing to keep his memory alive, and sadly, he fades from view a little more every year. I do suspect this lawsuit is more about publicity, ego, and small-mindedness that is, it is about pro wrestling and all of those that are in it. I know Owen was always proud of his body of work. His fans have never forgotten him, and most of today's WWE wrestlers and hundreds of employees have never forgotten him. They speak endlessly of loving memories that speak volumes of what kind of person he was. I saw Owen on a TV a few weeks ago against a young Matt Hardy, and it put me in such a good mood all day long. Why would anyone want to prevent that? Martha needs to accept the sad truth that he's gone, but we all deserve to be able to salute and honor him for being a great man and great wrestler that he was. I stopped caring a long time ago about what Martha thinks of me. We don't speak, and I haven't seen Owen's children in 10 years. But for what reasons I couldn't begin to tell you, I personally found great inner peace by opening up to forgiveness and instead, instead supported and encouraged current heart family members now fulfilling their dreams in the complicated but astounding world known as the WWE Universe. She completely ignores the fact that Natty, TJ Wilson, and Harry Smith have all made a pact when their 12-year-old cousin died and they would someday carry on that dream of wrestling in the WWE. This was years before Owen's death. And I don't see any reason they should forsake all their dreams. I can't speak more highly of the dedicated, hardworking WWE superstars of today. Having worked with all levels of talent since January, I can honestly say that you won't find a more wholesome bunch of athletes anywhere in any profession. Owen would be proud to be part of what they are. Martha could say or think whatever the hell she wants, but the Hart family as a whole found a way to forgive and move on for the sake of the next generation's well-being. Just because Owen died doesn't mean a hot legacy from Stu down to his wrestling sons and grandchildren have to die too. The best thing I could do for Owen's kids is to take them backstage, introduce them to all the people who love and remember their dad. Owen is loved and missed every day. Why Martha would insist they never know these people is sad and pathetic. I believe Owen would turn in his grave watching Martha erase every single thing he ever did, all for spite. Martha Hart needs to celebrate Owen's memory as much as possible, not block it away forever. How stupid and selfish is that? In her own book, she wrote how even though she was angry at Vince, she didn't hate him and that she felt that he was truly sorry about what happened. She had written him a letter in order for her to move on and to be at peace. Maybe she should practice what she preached. For those of you who haven't had a chance, and he plugs his own stuff, so. That lawsuit would end up being settled in April 2013, and, um, you know, there's been some conflicting numbers as far as what the settlement amount is. But uh, a lot of people still think to this day, Martha Hart is the reason. In fact, I think we're all convinced of it. Martha Hart is the reason why Owen Hart's not in the WWE Hall of Fame. 2011, WWE releases Chavo Guerrero Jr. He requested his release and was granted uh, it because he was very disgruntled of how he was being used in WWE. Come on, how many times have I talked about the garbage that they were putting them through with Hornswoggle at that time? Uh, need I say more? 2011, also, Sinclair Broadcasting uh, purchases Ring of Honor. 2012, TNA sues Scott Steiner. Breach of contract. And this stems from the contract Scott Steiner signed in December of 2010. 
And in that contract, it forbid Scott Steiner from making public statements about TNA without their prior approval. They knew that he had a loose cannon of a mouth, and uh, he did not disappoint at this time. So the case actually ended up going until February 2016, and the case was dismissed. So there you go. And wrapping up 2012, WWE releases Matt Stryker from the company. 2013, we talked about it about a month or so ago. Jack Swagger at that time, right in the midst of that big push with Zeb Coulter, he was found guilty of speeding and driving under the influence. Um, he was sentenced to six months probation, paid a $500 fine, and uh, which included court costs, and he avoided a two-day jail sentence. 2013, Alexa Bliss makes her pro wrestling debut. The earliest match that I could find in her young career, September 20th, 2013. She wrestled for NXT under her name, Alexa Bliss. She teamed up with Emma and Sasha Banks and lost to Bailey, Paige, and Kendall Sky. 2013, we had that infamous match that I remember so many people complaining about uh, on the show. Payback, John Cena beating Ryback in the three stages of hell. Did not go over well. And I just rhymed. I'm a poet in case you didn't know it. 2014, Bobby Lashley defeats Eric Young to win the TNA World Heavyweight title. 2014, Stephanie McMahon has her first wrestling match in over a decade. Yes, it was in mud. And yes, it was against Vicky Guerrero. But this was Vicky Guerrero's swan song. She would lose... Uh, Vicky to Stephanie in the mud wrestling match. And as a result, she was fired from WWE and she retired from the business. So this was the end of Vicky Guerrero as a WWE character. Wrapping up 2014, Michael Elgin wins the Ring of Honor World Heavyweight title over Adam Cole at Best in the World. 2015, Tyson Kidd undergoes major neck and spinal surgery. It's been that many years already, everyone. And uh, he's doing well, but uh, it's kind of sad how his in-ring career has turned out towards the end. 2015 as well, Ethan Carter III defeated Kurt Angle at an impact taping to win the World Heavyweight title. They originally were going to save that for pay-per-view, but they decided to do it at an impact taping instead. And finally for this episode, 2016 Money in the Bank pay-per-view. Now, unless I'm having a brain cramp right now, I think this turns out to what I'm going to say it is. First off, Seth Rollins defeats Roman Reigns to win the World Heavyweight title. Right after the match, Dean Ambrose cashes in the Money in the Bank briefcase and defeats Seth Rollins in eight seconds to win the title. So unless I'm having a brain cramp, doesn't that mean that Roman Reigns, Dean Ambrose, and Seth Rollins all held the World Heavyweight title same night? I think so. Uh, and probably the reason why Roman Reigns lost the belt that night. The following day, we learned that uh, Roman Reigns was suspended 30 days for violating the wellness policy. Now, um, there's been some conflicting reports online as far as what actually he tested positive for. Uh, some people reported that it was Adderall. Some people said that there was some type of elevated enzymes in his blood. I, I think the overall uh, 
reason that people have agreed with over the years uh, since then is Adderall. But, um, you know, he was ordered to apologize to the locker room. He apologized to the fans. As much as you may not be a Roman Reigns fan, he made a mistake. He apologized. He owned up to it. And the rest is history. And finally, this week of 2016, WWE presented the first round of the Cruiserweight Classic. I know a lot of Cruiserweights that were part of that tournament are commenting on social media about its anniversary. And uh, that's pretty much it. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Week in Wrestling History. Notable birthdays this week, those celebrating birthdays who are no longer with us. Happy birthday to John Tenta, Rudy Kay, Paul Jones, Wahoo McDaniel, Jay Youngblood, Moondog Nathan, and Miguel Perez. Mickey Doyle turns 70, El Connect 65, Todd Gordon 63, Coco Beware 61, Zeus, George Takano and Chicky Star turn 60, Bobby Blaze, Mark Youngblood and Don West turn 55, Mosco de la Merced turns 54, Mr. Ganasuki turns 50, Bedman Pondo 49, Anthony Michaels 48, Lou Marconi 45, Amber O'Neill turns 44, Layla and Amanda Violet turn 41. Rampage Jackson and Adam Pierce turn 40. Hiroki Goto and Matt Stryker turn 39. Tetsuya Naito, 36. Brandy Rhodes, 35. Jessica Havoc and Hiromi Mimura, 32. Mark Haskins turns 30. And finally, Billy Kay turns 29. Notable debuts this week in history. Mick Foley debuted in 1986. Minoru Suzuki in 1987, Madman Pondo in 89, Mr. Ganasuki in 91, Sajiro Otani in 1992. Bill Goldberg and Lefisto debuted in 97, Chase and Rance in 99, and Alexa Bliss in 2013. And finally, those who passed away this week in history. Cora Coombs died at age 92, Daisy May at 85, Bud Osborne at 80. Larry Nelson at 78, Billy Red Lines at 77, Don Green at 73, Jackie Fargo at 72, El Scorpio at 67, Crazy Luke Graham and Mr. Pogo died at age 66, Big Van Vader, we recently lost at age 63, Stan Stasiak at age 60, Boogie Woogie Brown at 54, Buddy Landell at 53, Biff Wellington at 46, Nancy Benoit at 43, Chris Benoit at 40, Victor the Bodyguard at 38, and Larry Doyle at age 37. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow me on Twitter, at DonTonyD. The website, DonTony.com. Email me, DonTony at DonTony.com. Facebook.com slash DTKC Show. And as always, if you like what we do, want to help support the shows, keep these free for everyone, help us with the bills. And not only that, get a lot of uh, exclusive Patreon content in return. Check out our Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash Tony. For as little as five bucks a month, you can sign up, get access to hundreds of hours of Patreon-exclusive shows. Every other week, Mish and I do a show called Breakfast Soup. It's a combination of Breakfast with Blasi and Wrestling Soup. For everyone out there that always wanted a Kevin Castle solo show, Every other week, he does a show called Castle Chronicles. And between that show and the one that I'm involved in, we have hundreds and hundreds of hours of content exclusively there. We have predictions, contests, giveaways. 
I mean, everybody on our Patreon page are truly the stockholders of what we do. And they offer so much input. We listen to the input and a lot of what they speak on reflects in all the shows that we do here. So I hope you enjoyed this. Once again, I'll be back next week with episode 26. Please send your feedback. As always, it is much appreciated. And you all take care. Be well. Talk to you all soon. Ciao. I'm enrolling in Medicare soon, and it had me a little confused. Then I found MyHealthPolicy.com. With MyHealthPolicy.com, I could go online and compare Medicare Advantage plans from some top-rated national insurers, including $0 monthly premium plans. I could learn about plans in my area and talk with a licensed insurance agent if needed. MyHealthPolicy.com has made doing my research a whole lot easier. My choice, my Medicare, myhealthpolicy.com.